This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Isle of Pirate's Doom by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Connor Kay. It runs one hour, 24 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Isle of Pirate's Doom by Robert E. Howard Read by Connor Kane The First Day The long, low craft which rode offshore had an unsavoury look, and lying close in my covert, I was glad that I had not hailed her. Caution had prompted me to conceal myself and observe her crew before making my presence known, and now I thanked my guardian spirit, for these were troublous times, and strange craft haunted the Caribbees. True, the scene was fair and peaceful enough. I crouched among green and fragrant bushes on the crest of a slope which ran down before me to the broad beach. Tall trees rose about me, their ranks sweeping away on either side. Below on the shore, green waves broke on the white sand, and overhead the blue sky hung like a dream. But as a viper in a verdant garden lay that black sullen ship, anchored just outside the shallow water. She had an unkempt look, a slouchy, devil-may-care rigging which speaks not of an honest crew or of a careful master. Anon, rough voices floated across the intervening space of water and beach, and once I saw a great hulking fellow slouching along the rail lift something to his lips and then hurl it overboard. Now the crew was lowering a boat, heavily loaded with men, and as they laid hand to oar and drew away from the ship, their coarse shouts and the replies of those who remained on deck came to me, though the words were vague and indistinct. Crouching lower, I yearned for a telescope, that I might learn the name of the ship, and presently the longboat swept in close to the beach. There were eight men in her, seven great rough fellows, and the other a slim, foppishly clad varlet, wearing a cocked hat, who did no rowing. Now, as they approached, I perceived that there was an argument among them. Seven of them roared and bellowed at the dandy, who, if he answered at all, spoke in a tone so low that I could not hear. The boat shot through the light surf, and as she beached, a huge hairy rogue in the bow heaved up and plunged at the fop, who sprang up to meet him. I saw steel flash and heard the larger man bellow. Instantly, the other leapt nimbly away, splashing through the wet sand and legged it inland as fast as he might, while the other rogues steamed out in pursuit, yelling and brandishing weapons. He, who had begun the brawl, 
halted a moment to make the longboat fast, then took up the chase, cursing at the top of his bull's voice, the blood trickling down his face. The dandy in the cocked hat led by several paces as they reached the first fringe of trees. Abruptly, he vanished into the foliage while the rest raced after him. And for a while, I could hear the alarums and bellowings of the chase till the sounds faded in the distance. Now I looked again at the ship. Her sails were filling, and I could see men in the rigging. As I watched, the anchor came aboard, and she stood off, and from her peak broke out the Jolly Roger. Truth, t'was no more than I had expected. Cautiously, I worked my way back among the bushes on hands and knees, and then stood up. A gloominess of spirit fell upon me, for when the sails had first come in sight, I had looked for rescue, but instead of proving a blessing, the ship had disgorged eight ruffians on the island for me to cope with. Puzzled, I slowly picked away between the trees. Doubtless, these buccaneers had been marooned by their comrades, a common affair with the bloody brothers of the main. Nor did I know what I might do, since I was unarmed, and these rogues would certainly regard me as an enemy, as in truth I was to all their ilk. My gorge rose against running and hiding from them, but I saw naught else to do. Nay, Would be rare fortune were I able to escape them at all. Meditating thus, I had travelled inland a considerable distance, yet had heard naught of the pirates when I came to a small glade. Tall trees, crowned with lustrous green vines, and gemmed with small exotic-hued birds flitting through their branches, rose about me. The musk of tropic growths filled the air and the stench of blood as well. A man lay dead in the glade. Flat on his back he lay, his seaman's shirt drenched with the gore which had ebbed from the wound below his heart. He was one of the brethren of the red account, no doubt of that. He'd never shoes to his feet, but a great ruby glimmered on his finger, and a costly silk sash girdled the waist of his tarry pantaloons. Through this sash were thrust a pair of flintlock pistols, and a cutlass lay near his hand. Here were weapons, at least, so I drew the pistols from his sash, noting they were charged, and having thrust them in my waistband, I took his cutlass, too. He would never need weapons again, and I had good thought that I might very soon. Then, as I turned from despoiling the dead, a soft mocking laugh brought me round like a shot. The dandy of the longboat stood before me. Faith, he was smaller than I had thought, though supple and lithe. Boots of fine Spanish leather he wore on his trim legs, and above them tight breeches of doeskin. A fine crimson sash with tassels and rings to the ends was round his slim waist, and from it jutted the silver butts of two pistols. A blue coat with flaring tails and gold buttons gaped open to disclose the frilled and laced shirt beneath. Again, I noted that the cocked hat still rode the owner's brow at a jaunty angle, golden hair showing underneath. Satan's throne! 
said the wearer of this finery. There is a great ruby ring you've overlooked. Now, I looked for the first time at the face. It was a delicate oval with red lips that curled in mockery, large grey eyes that danced, and only then did I realise that I was looking at a woman and not a man. One hand rested saucily on her hip, the other held a long, ornately hilted rapier, and, with a twitch of repulsion, I saw a trace of blood on the blade. Speak, man, she cried impatiently. Are you not ashamed to be caught at your work? Now I doubt that I was a sight to inspire respect, what with my bare feet and my single garment, sailor's pantaloons, and they stained and discoloured with salt water. But at her mocking tone, my anger stirred. At least, said I, finding my voice, if I must answer for robbing a corpse, someone else must answer for making it. Ha! I struck a spark then. She laughed in a hard way. Satan's fiends, if I'm to answer for all the corpses I've made, twill be a wearisome reckoning. My gorge rose at that. One lives and one learns, said I. I had not thought to meet a woman who rejoiced in cold-blooded murder. Cold-blooded, you say? She fired up then. Am I then to stand and be butchered like a sheep? Had you chosen the proper life for a woman, you had had no necessity either to slay or be slain, said I, carried away by my revulsion. And then I regretted what I had said, for it was beginning to dawn on me who this girl must be. So, so self-righteous, she sneered, her eyes beginning to flash dangerously. So you think I'm a rogue, and what might you be, may I ask? What do you, on this out-of-the-way island, and why do you come a-stealing through the jungle to take the belongings of a dead man? My name is Stephen Harmer, mate of the Blue Countess, Virginia trader. Seven days ago, she burned to the waterline from a fire that broke out in her hold, and all her crew perished, save myself. I floated on a hatch and eventually raised this island where I've been ever since. The girl eyed me, half thoughtfully, half mockingly, while I told my tale, as if expecting me to lie. As for taking weapons, I added, it's but bitter meat to bide without arms among such rogues. Name them none of mine, she answered shortly, then even more abruptly. Do you know who I am? There could only be one name you could wear, what with your foppery and cold-blooded manner, and that's Helen Tavrell. I bow to your intuition, she said sardonically for it does not come to my mind that we have ever met. No man can sail the seven seas without hearing Helen Tavril's name, and, to the best of my knowledge, she is the only woman pirate now roving the Caribbees. So, you have heard the sailors talk, and what do they say of me, then? That you are as bold and heartless a creature as ever walked a quarter deck or traded petticoats for breeches, I answered frankly. Her eyes sparkled dangerously, and she cut viciously at a flower with her sword point. And is that all, they say? 
They say that though you follow a vile and bloody trade, no man can say truthfully that he has ever so much as kissed your lips. This seemed to please her, for she smiled. And do you believe that, sir? Aye, I answered boldly. Though may I roast in Hades, if I ever saw a pair more kissable. For truth to tell, the rare beauty of the girl was going to my head. I, who had looked on no woman for months, my heart softened toward her. Then the sight of the dead man at my feet sobered me. But before I could say more, she turned her head aside, as if listening. Come, she exclaimed, I think I hear Gower and his fools returning. If there is any place on this cursed island where one may hide a space, lead me there, for they will kill us both if they find us. Certes, I could not leave her to be slaughtered, so I motioned her to follow me and made off through the trees and bushes. I struck for the southern end of the island, going swiftly but warily. The girl followed as light-footed as an Indian brave. The bright-hued butterflies flitted about us, and high in the interwoven branches of the thick trees sang birds of vivid plumage. But attention was in the air, as if, with the coming of the pirates, a mist of death hung over the whole island. The underbrush thinned as we progressed, and the land sloped upward, finally breaking into a number of ravines and cliffs. Among these, we made our way, and much I marveled at the activity of the girl, who sprang about and climbed with the ease of a cat, and even outdid me, who had passed most of my life in the ship's rigging. At last we came to a low cliff, which faced the south. At its foot ran a small stream of clear water, bordered by white sand, and shadowed by waving fronds and tall vegetation, which grew to the edge of the sand. Beyond, across this narrow, rankly grown expanse, there rose other high cliffs, fronting north and completing a natural gorge. We must go down this, I said, indicating the cliff on which we stood. Let me aid you. But she, with a scornful toss of her head, had already let herself over the cliff's edge and was making her own way down clinging foot and hand to the long heavy vines which grew across the face of it. I started to follow, then hesitated, as a movement among the fronds by the stream caught my eye. I spoke a quick word of warning. The girl looked up to catch what I had said, and then a withered vine gave way, and she clutched wildly and fell sprawling. She did not fall far, and the sand in which she lighted was soft, but on the instant before she could regain her feet, the vegetation parted and a tall pirate leapt upon her. I glimpsed, in a single fleeting instant, the handkerchief knotted about his skull, the snarling bearded face, the cutlass swung high in a brawny hand. No time for her to draw sword or pistol, he loomed over her like the shadow of death, and the cutlass swept downward, but even as it did, I drew pistol and fired blindly and without aim. He swerved sideways, the cutlass veering wildly, and pitched face down in the sand without a sound. And so close had been her escape that the sweep of his blade had knocked the cocked hat from the girl's locks. I fairly flung myself down the cliff, 
and stood over the body of the buccaneer. The deed had been done involuntarily, without conscious thought, but I did not regret it. Whether the girl deserved saving from death, a fact which I doubted, I considered it a worthy deed to rid the seas of at least one of those wolves which scoured it. Helen was dusting her garments and cursing softly to herself because her hat was awry. Come, said I, somewhat vexed, you are lucky to have escaped with a skull uncloven. Let us be gone ere his comrades come up at the sound of the shot. That was a goodly feat, she said, preparing to follow me. Fair through the temples you drilled him. I doubt if I could have done better. It was pure luck that guided the ball, I said angrily, for of all faults I detest in women, heartlessness is the greatest. I had no time to take aim, and had I had such time, I might not have fired. This silenced her, and she said no more until we reached the opposite cliff. There at the foot stretched a long expanse of solid stone, and I bade her walk upon it. So we went along the line of the cliff, and presently came to a small waterfall, where a stream tumbled over the cliff's edge to join the one in the gorge. There's a cave behind that fall, said I, speaking above the chatter of the water. I discovered it by accident one day. Follow me. So saying, I waded into the pool, which whirled and eddied at the cliff's foot, and ducking my head, plunged through the falling sheet of water, with the girl close behind. We found ourselves in a small dark cavern, which ran back until it vanished in the blackness, and in front the light ebbed in faintly through the silver screen of the falling water. This was the hiding place I had been making for when I met the girl. I led the way back into the cavern, until the sound of the falling stream died to a murmur, and the girl's face glimmered like a rare white flower in the thick darkness. Damn, she said, beating the water from her coat with the cocked hat. You lead me into some cursed inconvenient places, Mr. Harmer. First, I fall in the sand and soil my garments, and now they are wet. Will not Gower and his gang follow the sound of the pistol shot and find us, tracking our footprints where we bent down the bushes, crossing from cliff to cliff? No doubt they will come, I answered, but they will be able to track us only to the cliff where we walked a good way on stone which shows no footprints. They will not know whether we went up or down or whither. There's not one chance in a hundred of them ever discovering this cavern. At any rate, it's the safest place on the island for us. Do you still wish you had let Dick Comrell kill me? She asked. He was a bloody pirate, whatever his name might be. I replied, no, you're too comely for such a death, no matter what your crimes. Your compliments take the sting from your accusations, but your accusations rob your compliments of their sweetness. Do you really hate me? No, not you, but the red trade you follow. Were you in some other walk of life, it's joyed I'd be to look on you. Zounds, she said, but you are a strange fellow. One moment you talk like a courtier, and the next like a chaplain. What really are your feelings that you speak so inconsistently? 
I am fascinated and repelled, I replied, for the dim white oval of her face floated before me and her nearness made my senses real. As a woman you attract me, but as a pirate you rouse a loathing in me. God's truth, but you are a very monster like that Lilith of old, with the face of a beautiful maiden and the body of a serpent. Her soft laugh lilted silvery and mocking in the shadows. So, so, Broadbrim, you saved my life, though methinks you grudge the act, and will I not run you through the body, as I might have done otherwise, for such words as you have just said I like not. Are you wondering how I came to be here with you? They of the Red Brotherhood are like angry wolves and range everywhere, I answered. I've yet to sight an island of the main unpolluted by their cursed feet, so it's no wonder to me to find them here or to find them marooning each other. Marooned? John Gower marooned from his own ship? Scarcely, friend. The craft from which I landed is the Black Raider on the account, as you know, She sails to intercept a Spanish merchantman and returns in two weeks. She frowned. Black be the memory of the day I shipped on her. For a more rascally, cowardly crew I have never met. But Roger O'Farrell, my captain aforetime, is without ship at present, and I threw in my lot with Gower, the swine. Yesterday he forced me to accompany him ashore, and on the way I gave my opinion of him and his dastardly henchmen. At that, they were little pleased, and bellowed like bulls, but dared not start fighting in the boat, lest we all fall among the sharks. So the moment she beached, I slashed Gower's ape face with my rapier, and outfooted the rest and hid myself. But it was my bad fortune to come upon one alone. He rushed at me and swung with his blade, but I parried it, and spitted him with a near riposte, just under the heart. Then you came along, righteousness, and the rest you know. They must have scattered all over the isle, as testifieth Comrel. Perhaps I should tell you why Gower came ashore with seven men. Have you ever heard of the treasure of Mogar? No. I thought not. Legend has it that when the Spaniards first sailed the main, they found an island whereon was a decaying empire. The natives lived in mud and wooden huts on the beach, but they had a great temple of stone, a remnant of some forgotten, older race, in which there was a vast treasure of precious stones. The dons destroyed these natives, but not before they had concealed their hoard so thoroughly that not even a Spanish nose could smell it out, and those the dons tortured died unspeaking. So the Spaniards sailed away empty-handed, leaving all traces of the Mogar kingdom utterly effaced, save the temple which they could not destroy. The island was off the beaten track of ships, and, as time went by, the tale was mostly forgotten, living only as a sailor's yarn. Such men as took the tale seriously and went to the island were unable to find the temple. Yet on this voyage, there shipped with John Gower a man, who swore that he had set foot on the island and had looked on the temple. He said he had landed there with the French buccaneer de Romba and that they found the temple just as it was described in the legend. 
But before they could search for the treasure, a man-o'-war hove in sight, and they were forced to run. Nor ran far, ere they fell afoul of a frigate who blew them out of the water. Of the boat's crew, who were with Doromba when he found the temple, only this man who shipped with Gower remained alive. Naturally, he refused to tell the location of it, or to draw a map, but offered to lead Gower there in return for a goodly share of the gems. So, upon sighting the land, Gower bade his mate, Frank Marker, sail to take a merchantman we had word of some days ago, and Gower himself came ashore. What? Do you mean? I, on this very island, rose and flourished and died the lost kingdom of Mogar, and somewhere among the trees and vines, hereon lies the forgotten temple with the ransom of a dozen empires. The dream of a drunken sailor, I said uncertainly. And why tell me of this? Why not? She said, reasonably enough. We are in the same boat, and I owe you a debt of gratitude. We might even find the treasure ourselves. Who knows? The man who sailed with Derumba will never lead John Gower to the temple unless ghosts walk, for he was Dick Comrell, the man you killed. Listen! A faint sound had come to me through the dim gurgle of the falls. Dropping on my belly, I wriggled cautiously toward the water-veiled entrance and peered through the shimmering screen. I could make out dimly the forms of five men standing close to the pool. The taller one was waving his arm savagely, and his rough voice came to me faintly, as if far away. I drew back, even though knowing he could not see through the falls, and as I did, I felt silky curls brush against my shoulder, and the girl, who had crawled after me, put her lips close to me to whisper, under the noise of the water. He with the cut face and the fierce eyes is Captain Gower. The lank, dark one is the Frenchman, La Costa. He with the beard is Tom Belafonte, and the other two are Will Harbour and Mike Donler. Long ago, I had heard all those names and knew that I was looking on as red-handed and black-hearted a group as ever walked deck or beach. After many gestures and talk, which I could not make out, they turned and went along the cliff, vanishing from view. When we could talk in ordinary tones, the girl said, Damn, but Gower is in a rare rage. He will have to find the temple by himself now, since your pistol ball scattered Dick Comrell's brains. The swine! He'd be better putting the width of the seven seas between himself and me. Roger O'Farrell will pay him out for the way he has treated me. I wager you, even if I fail in my vengeance. Vengeance for what? I asked curiously. For disrespect, he sought to treat me as a woman, not as a buccaneer comrade. When I threatened to run him through, he cursed me and swore he would tame me some day and made me come ashore with him. A silence followed. Then suddenly she said, Zounds, are we to stay pent up here forever? I'm growing hungry. Bide you here, said I, and I will go forth and fetch some fruit which grows wild here. Good enough she replied, but I crave more than fruit. By Zeus, there is bread and salt pork and dried beef in the longboat, and I have a mind to sally forth and... Now I, 
who had tasted no Christian food in more than a week, felt my mouth water at the mention of bread and beef. But I said, Are you insane? Of what good is a hiding place if it is not used? You will surely fall into the hands of those rogues. No, now is the best time for such an attempt, she said, rising. Hinder me not. My mind is made up. You saw that the five were together, so there is no one at the boat. The other two are dead. Unless the whole gang of them return to the beach, said I. Not likely. They are still searching for me, or else have taken up the hunt for the temple. No, I tell you, now is the best time. Then I go with you, if you are so determined, I replied, and together we dropped from the ledge in front of the cavern, splashed through the falls, and waded out of the pool. I peered about, half expecting an attack, but no man was in sight. All was silent, save for the occasional raucous plaint of some jungle bird. I looked to my weapons. One of the dead buccaneer's pistols was empty, of course, and the priming of the other was wet. The locks of mine are wrapped in silk, said Helen, noticing my activities. Here, draw the useless charge and reload them. And she handed me a waterproof horn flask with compartments for powder and ball. So I did as she said, drying the weapons with leaves. I am probably the finest pistol shot in the world, said the girl modestly, but the blade is my darling. She drew her rapier and slashed and thrust the empty air. You sailors seldom appreciate the true value of the straight steel, she said. Look at you with that clumsy cutlass. I could run you through while you were heaving it up for a slash. So! Her point suddenly leapt out and a lock of my hair floated to the earth. Have a care with that skewer, said I, annoyed and somewhat uneasy. Save your tierces and thrusts for your enemies. As for a cutlass, it is a downright weapon for an honest man who knows naught of your fine French tricks. Roger O'Farrell knows the worth of a rapier, she said. T'would do your heart good to see it sing in his hand, and how that he spits those who oppose him. Let us be going. I answered shortly, for her hardness rasped again on me, and it somehow irked me to hear her sing the praises of the pirate O'Farrell. So we went silently up through the gorges and ravines, mounting the north cliffs at another place, and so proceeded through the thick trees until we came to the crest of the slope that led down to the beach. Peering from ambush, we saw the longboat lying alone and unguarded. No sound broke the utter stillness as we went warily down the incline. The sun hung over the western waters like a shield of blood, and the very birds in the trees seemed to have fallen silent. The breeze had gone, and no leaf rustled on any branch. We came to the longboat and, working swiftly, broke open the kegs and made a bundle of bread and beef. My fingers trembled with haste and nervousness, for I felt we were riding the crest of a precipice. I was sure that the pirates would return to their boat before nightfall, and the sun was about to go down. Even as this thought came to me, I heard a shout and a shot, and a bullet hummed by my cheek. Mike Donler and Will Harbour were running down the beach toward us, cursing and bellowing horrible threats. 
They had come upon us from among the lofty rocks further down the shore, and now were on us before we had time to draw a breath. Donla rushed in on me, wild eyes aflame, belt buckle, finger rings, and cutlass blade, all afire in the gleam of the sunset. His broad breast showed hairy through his open shirt, and I levelled my pistol and shot him through the chest, so that he staggered and roared like a wounded buffalo. Yet such was his terrible vitality that he came reeling on in spite of this mortal hurt to slash at me with his cutlass. I parried the blow, splitting his skull to the brows with my own blade, and he fell dead at my feet, his brains run out on the sand. Then I turned to the girl, whom I feared to be hard-pressed, and looked just in time to see her disarm Harbour with a dexterous wrench of her wrist, and run him through the heart so that her point came out under his shoulder. For a fleeting instant he stood erect, mouth gaping stupidly, as if upheld by the blade. Blood gushed from that open mouth, and, as she withdrew her sword, with a marvellous show of wrist strength, he toppled forward, dead before he touched earth. Helen turned to me with a light laugh. At least, Mr. Harmer, quoth she, my skewer does a cleaner and neater job than does your cleaver. Bones and blades. I had no idea there was so much brain to Mike Donler. Have done, said I somberly, repelled by her words and manner. This is a butcher's business, and one I like not. Let us be gone. If Gower and the other two are not behind these, they will come shortly. Then take up the pack of food, imbecile, she said sharply. Have we come this far and killed two men for nothing? I obeyed without speaking, though, truth to tell, I had little appetite left, for my soul was not with such work as I had just done. As the ocean drank the westering sun and the swift southern twilight fell, we made our way back toward the cavern under the falls. When we had topped the slope and lost sight of the sea, except such as glimmered between the trees in the distance, we heard a faint shout and knew that Gower and the remainder of his men had returned. No danger until morning, said my companion. Since we know that the rogues are on the beach, there is no chance of coming upon them unexpectedly in the wood. They will scarcely venture into this unknown wilderness at night. After we had gone a little further, we halted, set us down and supped on beef and bread, washing it down with draughts from a clear cold stream. And I marvelled at how daintily and with what excellent manners this pirate girl ate. When she had finished and washed her hands in the stream, she tossed her golden curls and said, By Zeus, this hath been a profitable day's work for two hunted fugitives. Of the seven buccaneers which came ashore early this morn, but three remain alive. What say you, shall we flee them no more, but come upon them and trust to our battle fortune? Three against two are not such great odds. What do you say? I asked her bluntly. I say nay, she replied frankly. Were it any man but John Gower, I might say differently. But this Gower is more than a man. He is crafty and ferocious as any wild beast, and there is that about him which turns my blood to ice. He is one of the two men I have ever feared. Who was the other? 
Roger O'Farrell. Now, she had a way of pronouncing that rogue's name as if he were a saint or a king. And for some reason this rasped on my nerves greatly, so I said nothing. Were Roger O'Farrell here, she prattled on, we should have naught to fear, for no man on all the seven seas is his equal, and even John Gower would shun the issue with him. He is the greatest navigator that ever lived, and the finest swordsman. He has the manners of a cavalier, which in truth he is. Who is this Roger O'Farrell? I asked brutally. Your lover? At that, quick as a flash, she struck me across the face with her open hand, so that I saw stars. We were on our feet, and I saw her face crimson in the light of the moon, which had come over the black trees. Damn you! she cried. O'Farrell would cut your heart out for that, were he here. From your own lips, I had it that no man could call me his. So they say, indeed, said I bitterly, for my cheek was stinging, and my mind was in such a chaotic state as is difficult to describe. They say, eh? And what think you? There was danger in her tone. I think, said I recklessly, that no woman can be a plunderer and a murderess, and also virtuous. It was a cruel and needless thing to say. I saw her face go white. I heard the quick intake of her breath, and the next instant her rapier point was against my breast, just under the heart. I have killed men for less, I heard her say in a ghostly, faraway whisper. I looked down at the thin silver line of death that lay between us, and my blood froze. But I answered, Killing me would scarcely change my opinion. An instant she stared at me. Then, to my utter bewilderment, she dropped the blade, flung herself down on the earth, and burst into a torrent of sobs. Much ashamed of myself, I stood over her uncertain, wishing to comfort her, yet afraid the little spitfire would stab me if I touched her. Presently I was aware of words mingling with her tears. After all I've done to keep clean, she sobbed, this is too much. I know I am a monster in the sight of men. There is blood on my hands. I've looted and cursed and killed and diced and drunk till my very heart is calloused. My only consolation... The only thing to keep me from feeling utterly damned is the fact I have remained as virtuous as any girl, and now men believe me otherwise. I wish I... I were dead. So did I, for the instant, until I was swept by an unutterable shame. Certainly the words I had used to her were not the act of a man, and now I was stunned at the removal of her mask of hard recklessness and the revelation of a surprisingly sensitive soul. Her voice had the throb of sincerity, and, truth to tell, I had never really doubted her. Now I dropped to my knees beside the weeping girl, and, raising her, made to wipe her eyes. Keep your hands off me, she ordered promptly, jerking away. I will have naught to do with you, who believe me a bad woman. I don't believe it, I answered. I most humbly crave pardon. It was a foul and unmanly thing for me to say. I have never doubted your honesty, and I said that which I did only because you had angered me. She seemed somewhat appeased. 
As for Roger O'Farrell, she said, he is twice as old as either of us. He took me off a sinking ship when I was a baby and raised me like his own daughter. And if I took to the life of a rover, it is not his fault, who would have established me like a fine lady ashore had I wished. But the love of adventure is in my blood, and though fate made a woman of me, I have lived a man's life. If I am hard and cold and heartless, what else might you expect of a maid who grew up among daily scenes of blood and violence, whose earliest remembrances are of sinking ships, crashing cannons, and the shrieks of the dying? I know the rotten worth of my companions. Sots, murderers, thieves, gallow birds, all save Captain Roger O'Farrell. Men say he is cruel, and it may be so, but to me he has always been kind and gentle, and moreover, he is a fine upstanding man, of high aristocratic blood, with the courage of a lion. I said nothing against the buccaneer, whom I knew to be the disinherited black sheep of a powerful Irish family, but I experienced a strange sensation of pleasure to learn from her lips just what their relationship was to each other. A long scene, forgotten, suddenly flashed in my mind. A boatload of people sighted off the Tortugas and taken aboard. The words of one of the women. And it's Helen Taverell we have to thank. God bless her. For she made Bloody Hilton put all we a boat with food and water. When the fiend would have burned us all with our ship. Woman pirate she may be, but a kind heart hath she for all that. After all, the girl was a credit to her sex, considering her raisings and surroundings, thought I, and felt strangely cheerful. You'll try to forget my words, said I. Now, let us be getting toward our hiding place, for it is like we will have need of it tomorrow. I helped her to her feet and gave her rapier into her hand. She followed me then without a word, and no conversation passed between us until we reached the pool beside the cliff. Here, we halted for a moment. Truth, it was a weird and fantastic sight. The cliffs rose stark and black on either side, and between them whispered and rustled the thick shadows of the fronds. The stream sliding over the cliff before us glimmered like molten silver in the moonlight, and the pool into which it slipped shimmered with long, bright ripples. The moon rode over all like a broad buckler of white gold. Sleep in the cavern, I commanded. I will make me a bed among these bushes which grow close by. Will you be safe thus? She asked. Aye, no man is like to come before morning, and there is no dangerous beasts on the island save reptiles which lurk among the swamps on either side of it. Without a word, she waded into the pool and vanished in the silver mist of the fall. I parted the bushes near at hand and composed myself for slumber. The last thing I remembered as I fell asleep was an unruly mass of golden curls beyond which danced a pair of brooding grey eyes. The Second Day Someone was shaking me out of my sound slumber. I stirred, then awoke suddenly and sat up. 
groping for blade or pistol. My word, sir, you sleep deep. John Gower might have stolen upon you and cut out your heart, and you not aware of it. It was hardly dawn, and Helen Tavril was standing over me. I had thought to wake sooner, said I, yawning. But I was weary from yesterday's work. You must have a body in nature of steel springs. She looked as fresh as if she had stepped from a lady's boudoir. Truth, there are few women who could endure such exertions, sleep all night on the bare sand of a cavern floor, and still look elegant and winsome. Let us to breakfast, she said. Methinks the fare is a trifle scanty, but there is pure water to go with it, and I believe you mentioned fruit. Later, as we ate, she said in a brooding manner, It stirs my blood most unpleasantly at the thought of John Gower gaining possession of the Mogar treasure. Although I have sailed with Roger O'Farrell, Hilton, Hanson, and Laban between times, Gower is the first captain to offer me insult. He is not like to find it, I said, for the simple reason that there is no such thing on this island. Have you explored all of it? All except the eastern swamps which are impenetrable. Her eyes lighted. Faith, man, were the shrine easy to find, it would have been looted long before now. I wager you that it lies somewhere amid that swamp. Now listen to my plan. It is yet a while before sunup, and as it is most likely that Gower and his bullies drank rum most of the night, they are not like to be up before broad daylight. I know their ways, and they do not alter them even for treasure. Let us go swiftly to this swamp and make a close search. I repeat, said I, it is tempting providence. Why have a hiding place if we do not use it? We have been very fortunate so far in evading Gower, but if we keep running hither and yon through the woods, we must eventually come on him. If we cower in our cave like rats, he will eventually discover us. Doubtless we can explore the swamp and return before he fares forth, or, if not, he has nothing of woodcraft but blunders along like a buffalo. We can hear them a league off and elude them, so there is no danger in hiding a while in the woods if need be, with always a safe retreat to run to as soon as they have passed. Were Roger O'Farrell here? She hesitated. If you must drag O'Farrell into it, I said with a sigh, I must agree to any wild scheme you put forth. Let us be started. Good, she cried, clapping her hands like a child. I know we will find treasure. I can see those diamonds and rubies and emeralds and sapphires gleaming even now. The first grey of dawn was lightening, and the east was growing brighter and more rosy as we went along the cliffs and finally went up a wide ravine to enter the thicker growth of trees that ran eastward. We were taking the opposite direction from that taken the day before. The pirates had landed on the western side of the island, and the swamp lay on the eastern. We walked along in silence a while, and then I asked abruptly, What sort of looking man is O'Farrell? A fine figure, with the carriage of a king. She looked me over with a critical eye. Taller than you, but not so heavily built, broad of shoulder, but not so deep of chest, a cold, strong, handsome face, smooth-shaven, hair as black as yours in spite of his age, and fine grey eyes, 
like the steel of swords. You have grey eyes too, but your skin is dark and his is very white. Still, she continued, you are shaved and clad properly. You would not cut a bad figure, even beside Captain O'Farrell. How old are you? Twenty-seven. I had not thought you that old. I am twenty. You look younger, I answered. I am old enough in experience, quoth she. And now, sir, we had best go on more silently, lest by any chance there be rogues among these woods. So we stole cautiously through the trees, stepping over creepers and making our way through undergrowth which rose thicker as we progressed eastward. Once, a large mottled snake wriggled across our path, and the girl started and shrank back nervously. Brave as a tigress when opposed to men, she had the true feminine antipathy toward reptiles. At last we came to the edge of the swamp, without having seen any human foe, and I halted. Here begin the serpent-haunted expanse of bogs and hummocks, which finally slopes down into the sea to the east. You see those tangled walls of moss-hung branches and vine-covered trunks which oppose us. Are you still for invading that foul domain? The only reply she made was to push past me impatiently. Of the first few rods of that journey, I like not to remember. I hacked away through the hanging vines and thickly grown bamboos with my cutlass, and the farther we went, the higher about our feet rose the stinking, clinging mud. Then the bamboos vanished, the trees thinned out, and we saw only rushes towering higher than our heads, with occasional bare spaces, wherein green, stagnant pools lay in the black, bubbling mud. We staggered through, sinking sometimes to our waists in the water and slime. The girl cursed fervently at the ruin it was making of her finery, while I saved my breath for the labour of getting through. Twice we tumbled into stagnant pools that seemed to have no bottom, and each time were hard put to get back on solid earth. Solid earth, say I? Nay, the treacherous, shaky, sucky stuff that passed for earth in that foul abomination. Yet we progressed, ploughing along, clinging to yielding rushes and to rotting logs, and making use of the more solid hummocks when we could. Once, Helen set her foot on a snake and shrieked like a lost soul. Nor did she ever become used to the sight of them, though they basked on nearly every log and writhed across the hummocks. I saw no end to this fool's journey, and was about to say so, when, above the rushes and foul swamp growth about us, I saw what seemed to be hard soil and trees just beyond. Helen exclaimed in joy, and, rushing forward, promptly fell into a pool which sucked her under except for her nose. Fumbling under the filthy water, I got a good grip on her arms and managed to draw her forth, cursing and spluttering. By that time I had sunk to my waist in the mud about the pool, and it was with some desperation that we fought our way toward the higher earth. At last our feet felt a semblance of bottom under the mud, and then we came out on solid land. Tall trees grew there, rank with vines, and grass flourished high between them, but at least there was no bog. I, 
who had been all around the swamp's edges, was amazed. Evidently, this place was a sort of island, lapped on all sides by the mire. One who had not been through the swamp would not think, as I had thought, that nothing lay there but water and mud. Helen was excited, but before she would venture further, she stopped and attempted to wipe some of the mud from her garments and face. Truth, we were both a ludicrous sight, plastered with mire and slime to the eyebrows. More, in spite of the silk wrappings, water had soaked into Helen's pistols, and mine were also useless. The barrels and locks were so fouled with mud that it would take some time to clean and dry them, so they might be recharged from her horn flask, which still contained some powder. I was in favour of halting long enough to do this, but she argued that we were not likely to need them in the midst of the swamp, and that she could not wait. She must explore the place we had found, and learn if the temple did in truth stand there. So I gave in, and we went on, passing between the boles of great trees, where the branches intertwined, so as to almost shut out the light of the sun, which had risen some time before. Such light as filtered through was strange, grey and unearthly, and the tall grass waved through it like thin ghosts. No birds sang there, no butterflies hovered, though we saw several snakes. Soon we noticed signs of stonework. Sunk in the earth and overgrown by the rank grass lay shattered paves and tiles. Further on, we came to a wide open stretch, which was like a street. Great flagstones lay, evenly placed, and the grass grew in the crevices between them. We fell silent as we followed this ancient street, for long-forgotten ghosts seemed to whisper about us, and soon we saw a strange building glimmering through the trees in front of us. Silently we approached it, no doubt of it, It was a temple, squarely built of great stone blocks. Wide steps led up to its floor, and up these we went, swords drawn, still and awed. On three sides it was enclosed by walls, windowless and doorless, on the fourth by huge squat columns which formed the front of the edifice. Tiling, worn smooth by countless feet, made up the floor, and in the middle of the great room began a row of narrow steps which led up to a sort of altar. No idol stood there, if there had ever been one. No doubt the Spaniards destroyed it. No carvings decorated wall, ceiling, or column. The keynote of the whole was a grim simplicity, a sort of terrible contempt for man's efforts at beautifying and adorning. What alien people had built that shrine so long ago? Surely some terrible and sombre people who died ages before the brown-skinned Caribs came to rear up their transient empire. I glanced up at the altar, which loomed starkly above us. It was set on a sort of platform, built solidly from the floor. A column rose from the centre of this platform to the ceiling, and the altar seemed to be a part of this column. We went up the steps. For myself, I was feeling not at all at ease, and Helen was silent, 
and slips her firm little hand into mine, glancing about nervously. A brooding silence hung over the place, as if a monster of some other world lurked in the corners, ready to leap upon us. The bleak antiquity of the temple oppressed and bore down upon us, with a sense of our own smallness and weakness. Only the quick nervous rattle of Helen's small heels on the stone steps broke the silence, and yet I could picture in my mind's eye the majestic and sombre rites of worship which had been enacted here in bygone years. Now, as we reached the platform and bent over the altar, I saw deep, dark stains on its surface and heard the girl shudder involuntarily. More shadows of horror out of the past, and had we known, the horror of that grim shrine was not yet over. Turning my attention to the solid column which rose behind the altar, my gaze followed it to the roof. This seemed to be composed of remarkably long slabs of stone, except for the space just above the altar. There, a single huge block rested, a stone of completely different character from those of the rest of the temple. It was a sombre, yellowish hue, shot with red veins, and of monstrous size. It must have weighed many tons, and I was puzzled by what means it was held in place. At last, I decided that the column which rose from the platform upheld it in some manner, for this entered the ceiling beside the great block. From the ceiling to the platform was, I should say, some fifteen feet, and from the platform to the floor, ten. Now that we are here, said the girl, rather breathlessly, where is the treasure? That's for us to find, I replied. Before we begin to search, let us prepare our pistols, for the saints alone know what lies before us. Down the stair we went again, and partway down, Helen halted, an uneasy look in her eyes. Listen, was that a footfall? I heard nothing. It must be your imagination conjuring up noises. Still, she insisted she heard something, and was for hurrying out into the open as quickly as might be. I reached the floor a stride or so before her, and turned to speak across my shoulder when I saw her eyes go wide, and her hand flew to her blade. I whirled to see three menacing shapes bulking among the columns, three men, smeared with mud and slime, with weapons gleaming in their hands. As in a dream, I saw the fierce, burning eyes of John Gower, the beard of the giant Belafonte, and the dark, saturnine countenance of La Costa. Then they were on us. How they had kept their powder dry as they crossed the filthy swamp, I know not. But even as I drew blade, Lacosta fired, and the ball struck my right arm, breaking the bone. The cutlass dropped from my numb fingers, but I stooped, and, catching it up in my left hand, met Belafonte's charge. The giant came on like a wild elephant, roaring, his cutlass whirling like a flame but the desperate fury of a cornered and wounded lion was mine, and, crashing on his guard, as a smith hammers an anvil, until the clash of our steel was an incessant clangor, I drove him across the room and beat him to his knees. But he partly parried the blow that felt him, 
so that my cutlass, glancing from his blade to his skull, turned in my hand and struck flat instead of edgewise, stunning and not killing. At that instant, Lacosta clubbed a musket and laid my scalp open so that I fell and lay in my own blood. Of how Helen fared, I was partly told later and partly saw, dimly, as I lay dazed and unable to rise. At the first alarm, she had attacked Gower, and he had met her with his blade held in a posture for defence rather than attack. Now, this Gower was a rare swordsman, able to hold his own for a time against even such a skill as was Helen's, though his weapon was a heavy cutlass, a blade unsuited for tricky work. He had no wish to slay her, and he had more craft than to leave himself wide open to her thrust by slashing at her. So he parried her first few tierces, retreating before her while Lacosta sought to steal upon her from behind and pinion her arms. Before the Frenchman could accomplish this design, Helen fainted Gower into a wide parry that left him open. Then and there had John Gower died, but luck was not with us this day, and Helen's foot slipped as she thrust for his black heart. The point wavered and only raked his ribs. Before she could recover her balance, Gower shouted and struck down her sword, dropping his own to seize her in his huge arms. She fought then, clawing at his face, kicking his shins, and striving to shorten her grip on her sword so as to use it against him, but he only laughed. And, having wrenched the rapier out of her hand, he held her helpless as a baby while he bound her with cords. Then he carried her over to a column, and, standing her upright against it, made her fast, she raving and cursing in a manner to make one's blood run cold. Then, seeing that I was struggling to arise, he ordered Lacosta to bind me. The Frenchman answered that both my arms were broken. Gower commanded him to bind my legs, which he did, and dragged me over near the girl. And how the Frenchman had made this mistake I know not, unless it were that because of the blow on my head I seemed unable as yet to use my limbs, so he assumed my left arm broken also, besides my right. And so, my fine lady, said John Gower, in his deep menacing voice, we end where we began. Where you got this brawny young savage I know not, but methinks he is a sad plight, for the present there is work to do, after which I may ease his hurts. Dazed as I was, I knew that he meant not by saving, but by slaying me and I heard Helen's quick intake of breath. You beast, she cried. Would you murder the boy? Gower gave a cold laugh and turned to Belafonte, who was just now rising in a muddled sort of way. Belafonte, is your brain yet too addled for our work? Nay, snarled the giant. But may I roast in Hades if I ever felt such a bash. I would get the tools ordered Gower, and Belafonte slouched out to return presently with picks and a great sledgehammer. I will tear this cursed building to pieces to find what I look for, quoth John Gower. 
And as I told you, when you asked the reason for loading the sledge into the longboat, my pretty Helen, Comrail died before he could tell us just where this temple lay. But from the hints he had let drop from time to time, I guessed that it lay on the eastern side of the isle. When we came hither this morn and saw the swamp, I felt our search was done. And truth it was, and our search for you also, as I found when I stole up to the columns and peered between them. We waste time, broke in Belafonte. Let us begin tearing something down. All a waste of time, said Lacosta moodily. Gower, I say this again, that this is a fool's quest, bound to end but evilly. This is a aunt of demons. Nay, Satan himself hath spread his dark wings over this temple, and it's no resort for Christians. As for the gems, a legend hath it, that the ancient priests of these people flung them into the sea, and I, for one, believe that legend. We shall soon see, was Gower's imperturbable reply. These walls and pillars have a solid look, but persistence and appliance will crumble any stone. Let us to work. Now, strange to say, I had neglected to make mention of the quality of the light in the building. On the outside there was a clear space, no trees growing within several yards of the walls on either side, yet so tall were these trees which grew beyond this space, and so close their branches, that the shrine lay ever in everlasting shadow, and the light which drifted through between the columns was dim and strange. The corners of the great room seemed veiled in a grey mist, and the humans moving about appeared like ghosts, their voices sounding hollow and unreal. Look about for secret doors and the like, said Gower, beginning to hammer along the walls, and the other two obeyed. Belafonte was eager, Lacosta otherwise. No luck will come of this, Gower, the Frenchman said, as he groped in the dimness of a far corner. This daring of heathen deities in heathen shrines. Nom de do! We all started at his wild shriek, and he reeled from the corner, screaming, a thing like a black cable writhing about his arm. As we looked aghast, he crashed down in the midst of the tiled floor, and there tore to fragments with his bare hands the hideous reptile which had struck him. Oh, Evans! he screeched writhing about and staring up at his mates with wild, crazy eyes. Oh, grand du! I burn! I die! Oh, saints! Grant me ease! Even Belafonte's steel nerves seemed shaken at this terrible sight, but Gower remained unmoved. He drew a pistol and flung it to the dying man. You are doomed, he said brutally. The venom is coursing through your veins like the fire of hell. But you may live for hours yet. Best end your torment. Lacosta clutched at the weapon as a drowning man seizes a twig. A moment he hesitated, torn between two terrible fears. Then, as the burning of the venom shook him with fierce stabbings, he set the muzzle against his temple, gibbering and yammering, and jerked the trigger. The stare of his tortured eyes will haunt me till doomsday. And may his crimes on earth be forgiven him, 
For if ever a man passed through purgatory in his dying, it was he. My God, said Belafonte, wiping his brow. This looks like the hand of Satan. Bah! Gower spoke impatiently. Tis but a swamp snake which crawled in here. The fool was so intent on his gloomy prophesying that he failed to notice it coiled up in the darkness, and so set his hand in its coils. Let not this thing shake you. Let us to work. But first, look about and see if any more serpents lurk here. First, bind up Mr. Harmer's wounds, if you please, spoke up Helen, a quaver in her voice, to tell how she had been affected. He is like to bleed to death. Let him, answered Gower without feeling. It will save me the task of easing him off. My wounds, however, had ceased to bleed, and though my head was still dizzy and my arm was beginning to throb, I was nowhere near a dead man. When the pirates were not looking, I began to work stealthily at my bonds with my left hand. Truth, I was in no condition to fight, but were I free, I might accomplish something. So lying on my side, I slowly drew my feet behind me and fumbled at the cords on my ankles with strangely numb fingers, while Gower and his mate poked about in the corner and hammered on the walls and columns. By Zeus, I believe yon altar is the key of this mystery, said Gower, halting his work at last. Bring the sledge and let us have a look at the thing. They mounted the stair like two rogues going up the gallows steps, and their appearance in the dim light was as men already dead. A cold hand touched my soul, and I seemed to hear the sweep of mighty bat-like wings. An icy terror seized me, I know not why, and drew my eyes to the great stone which hung broodingly above the altar. All the horror of this ancient place of forgotten mysteries descended on me like a mist, and I think Helen felt the same, for I heard her breath come quick and hard. The buccaneers halted on the platform, and Gower spoke, his voice booming like a hollow mockery in a great room, re-echoing from wall to ceiling. Now, Belafonte, up with your sledge and shatter me this altar. The giant grunted doubtfully at that. The altar seemed merely a solid square of stone, as plain and unadorned as the rest of the fane, an integral part of the platform, as was the column behind it. But Belafonte lifted the great hammer, and the echoes crashed as he brought it down on the smooth surface. Sweat gathered on the giant's brow with the effort, and the great muscles stood out on his naked arms and shoulders as he heaved up the sledge and smote again and yet again. Gower cursed, and Belafonte swore that it was a waste of strength, cracking a solid rock. But at Gower's urging, he again raised the hammer. He stood with his legs spread wide, arms above his head and bent backward, hands gripping the handle. Then, with all his power, he brought it down, and the hammer handle splintered with the blow. But, with a shattering crash, the whole of the altar gave way, and fragments flew in all directions. Hollow, by Satan, shouted John Gower, smiting fist on palm. I suspected as much, yet who would have thought it, with the lid so cleverly joined to the rest, 
that no crack showed at all. Strike flint and steel here, man. The inside of this strange chest is as dark as Hades. They bent over it, and there was a momentary flash. Then they straightened. No tinder, snarled Bellafonte, flinging aside his flint and steel. What saw ye? Naught but one great red gem, said Gower moodily. But it may be that there is a secret compartment below the bottom where it lies. He leaned over the altar chest and thrust his hand therein. By Satan, said he, this cursed gem seems to cling fast to the bottom of the chest, as though it were fastened to something, a metal rod from the feel. Ha! It gives, and... Through his words came a muffled creak as of bolts and levers long unused. A rumble sounded from above, and we all looked up. And then the two buccaneers beside the altar gave a deathly cry and flung up their arms as down from the roof thundered the great central stone. Column, altar, and stair crashed into red ruin. Stunned by the terrible earthquake-like noise, the girl and I lay, eyes fixed with terrible fascination, on the great heap of shattered stone in the middle of the temple, from under which oozed a river of dark red. At last, after what seemed like a long time, I, moving like a man in a trance, freed myself and unbound the girl. I was very weak, and she put out an arm to steady me. We went out of that temple of death, and once in the open, never did free air and light seemed so fair to me, though the air was tainted with the swamp reek and the light was strange and shadowy. Then a wave of weakness flooded body and brain. I fell to the earth and knew no more. And last... Someone was laving my brow, and at last I opened my eyes. Steve! Oh, Steve, are you dead? Someone was saying. The voice was gentle, and there was a hint of tears. Not yet, said I, striving to sit up, but a small hand forced me down gently. Steve, said Helen, and I felt a strange delight in hearing her call me by my first name. I have bandaged you as well as might be with such material as I had, stuff torn from my shirt. We should get out of this low, dank place to a fresher part of the island. Do you think you can travel? I'll try, I said, though my heart sank at the thought of the swamp. I have found a road, she informed me. When I went to look for clean water, I found a small spring and also stumbled upon what was once a fine road, built with great blocks of stone, set deep in mire. The mud overlaps it now, some few inches, and rushes grow thereon, but it's passable, so let us be gone. She helped me to my feet, and, with one arm about me, guided my uncertain steps. In this manner, we crossed the ancient causeway, and I found time to marvel again at the nature of that race who had built so strongly 
and had so terribly protected their secrets. The journey through the swamp seemed without end, and again through the thick jungle, but at last my eyes, swimming with torment and dizziness, saw the ocean glimmering through the trees. Soon we were able to sink down beside the longboat on the beach, exhausted. Yet Helen would not rest as I urged her to, but took a case of bandages and ointment from the boat and dressed my wounds. With a keen dagger, she found and cut out the bullet in my arm, and I thought I would die thereat, and then made a shift at setting the broken bone. I wondered at her dexterity, but she told me that from early childhood she had aided in dressing hurts and setting broken limbs, that Roger O'Farrell tended thus to all his wounded himself, having attended a medical university in his youth, and he imparted all his knowledge to her. Still, she admitted that the setting of my arm was a sad job with the scant material she had, and she feared it would give me trouble, but while she was talking, I sank back and became unconscious, for I had lost an incredible amount of blood, and it was early dawn of the next day before I came to my full senses. Helen, while I lay senseless, had made me a bed of soft leaves, spreading over me her fine coat, which I fear was none too fine now, what with the blood and stains on it. And when I came to myself, she sat beside me, her eyes wide and sleepless, her face drawn and haggard in the early grey of dawn. Steve, are you going to live? asked she, and I made shift to laugh. You have scant opinion of my powers, if you think a pistol ball and a musket stock can kill me, I answered. How feel you, Helen? Tired, a bit, she smiled, but remarkably meditative. I have seen men die in many ways, but never a sight to equal that in the temple. Their death shrieks will haunt me to my death. How do you think their end was brought about? All seems mazed and vague now, said I, but methinks I remember seeing many twisted and broken metal rods among the ruins. From the way the platform and stair shattered, I believe that the whole structure was hollow, like the altar, and the column also, a crafty system of levers, must have run through them up to the roof, where the great stone was held in place by bolts or the like. I believe that the gem in the altar was fastened to a lever which, working up through the column, released that stone. She shuddered. Like enough. And the treasure? There never was any. Or, if there was, the Caribs flung it into the sea, and knowing some curse lay over the temple, pretended that they had hidden it therein, hoping the Spaniards would come to harm while searching for it. Certainly, that thing was not the work of the Caribs, and I doubt if they knew just what sort of fate lay in wait there. But, certes, any man could look on that accursed shrine and instinctively feel that doom overshadowed the place. Another dream turned to smoke, she sighed. La la, and me a wishing for rubies and sapphires as large as my fist. She was gazing out to sea as she spoke, where the waves were beginning to redden in the glowing light. Now she sprang erect. 
A sail! The Black Raider, returning! I exclaimed. No, even at this distance, I can tell the cut of a man of war. She is making for this island. For fresh water, no doubt, said I. Helen stood twisting her slim fingers uncertainly. My fate lies with you. If you tell them I am Helen Taverell, I will hang between high tide and low on executioner's dock. Helen, said I, reaching up and taking her small hand and pulling her down beside me. My opinion of you has changed since first I saw you. I still maintain the red trade is no course for a woman to follow, but I realized what circumstances forced you into it. No woman, whatever her manner of life, could be kinder, braver, and more unselfish than you have been. To the men of yonder craft, you shall be Helen Harmer, my sister, who sailed with me. Two men have I feared, she said with lowered eyes. John Gower, because he was a beast. Roger O'Farrell, because he was so fine and noble. One man I have respected, O'Farrell. Now I find a second man to respect without fearing. You are a bold, honest youth, Steve. And, and what? Nothing. She seemed confused. Helen, said I, drawing her gently closer to me. You and I have gone through too much blood and fire together for anything to come between us. Your beauty fascinated me when I first saw you. Later, I came to understand the sterling worth of the soul which lay beneath your reckless mask. Each soul has its true mate, little comrade, and though I fought the feeling and strove to put it from me, fondness was born in my bosom for you, and it has grown steadily. I care not what you may have been, and I am but a sailor, now without a ship, but let me tell yonder seamen when they land that you are not my sister, but my wife-to-be. A moment she leaned toward me, Then she drew away, and her eyes danced with the old jaunty fire. La, sir, are you offering to marry me? Tis very kind of you indeed, but... Helen, don't mock me! Truth, Steve, I am not, she said, softening. But I had never thought of any such a thing before. La, I must be growing up with a vengeance. Fie, sir, I am too young to marry yet and I have not yet seen all of the world I wish to. Remember, I am still Helen Taverell. I care not. Marry me, and I will take you from this life. Not so fast, she said, tracing patterns in the sand with her finger. I must have time to think this thing over. Moreover, I will take no step without Roger O'Farrell's consent. I am only a young girl after all, Steve, and I tell you truth. I have never thought of marrying or even having a lover. Ah, me, these men, how they press a poor maid, laughed she. Helen, I exclaimed, vexed yet amused. Have you no care for me at all? Why, as to that, she avoided my gaze. I really feel a fondness for you, such as I have never felt for any other man, not even Roger O'Farrell, but I must mull over this and discover if it be true love. Thereat, she laughed merrily and loud, and I cursed despairingly. Fie! Such language before your lady love, 
she said. Now hear me, Steve. We must seek Roger O'Farrell, wherever he may be, for I am like a daughter to him, and if he likes you, why, who knows? But you must not speak of marrying until I am older and have had many more adventures. Now we shall be true comrades, as we have been hitherto. And a comrade must allow an honest kiss, said I, glancing seaward where the ship came sweeping grandly, and with a light laugh she pressed her lips to mine. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Connor. Hi, I'm Alex. And hi, I'm Koa. We're going to talk about Isle of Pirate's Doom by Robert E. Howard, or it's The Isle of Pirate's Doom by Robert E. Howard. Uh, I'm a little bit worried, Connor. Was this first published in 1975? It was, um, because this story did not sell, um, but... uh, I, I'm trying to remember where exactly I got this uh, the text from, but is, it appears to be in the public domain. Uh, <laughs> I believe it's on very much Australia. depends which country you're in. Yeah, it's so yeah. it's it's 50 years after death in Canada. It's or also 70. Uh, it's also 70 years after his death, so it is in the public domain at least in Europe and in, in only can and in Australia anyway. Yeah, except I, except it's 50 years after publication if published after death. So I'm I'm thinking that this is probably going to be public domain in Canada in 2025, mm. uh, which means check. this show might come out a little later than we thought. But uh, the uh, the other thing that's really interesting is who has the copyright? Oh well, who does? Do you know? I, I would say nobody the fuck knows, and it's because of the <laughs> how fucked up the copyright system is. How can you claim, Connor, how can you claim to have copyright over something you published, uh, right? If you are not the artist, you're not the author, and you're saying I have copyright over something someone else wrote many years after. Like, there's no estate here, right? There's a corporation Mm. who's willing to say that they have the rights to everything. There's a yeah. there's still a I think Lovecraft one. You have to take it up with what are they called? Uh, called no no. Fred Malmberg is a guy at any rate. He does a company. Oh yeah, he he'd happily take your money. You probably have to take it up with him. Whether how, how I mean, the stuff is still in the public domain at least in in Europe. It's Australia. Hmm. I'm not. I'm I'm willing to have this fight. And uh, if it comes to a lawsuit of uh, three years between now, or I guess next year when it comes out. And I'm the pretty two sure years. Malmberg won't go uh, go after a small part. Oh, you would be surprised, my friend. After, after bigger stuff like you uh, would be people surprised. wanting to do uh, unauthorized games or sequels or whatever. My friend uh, Bill Holweg did an audio drama of of uh, Queen of the Black Coast and was working on a Red Nails one, 
Um, and they said, you needed to authorize this through us. And they said, uh, I, we're just doing this for free. It's all, you know, volunteers and all that. And they said, oh, well, we'll give you a license for free then, or a nominal fee. And then they said, no, we're not going to do it. They changed their mind because, oh, no. because how can you market something and say we have the exclusive rights to it and then limit that because you can always sell it later, right? This is like, this is the grift of the copyright system that we have where decades after everybody's dead, some corporation is sitting on the rights to insulin, sitting on the rights to whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? Not that insulin's, I mean, it's all out of patent, right? But it doesn't matter. They're still sitting on it and they're still willing to sue you over it. And, you know, given that. Well, this is a fairly little known story. It is. I, I don't and imagine it, we're going to get too uh, much heat, but I I'm willing to take it. I think it was a, was a live, it was a radio play version. Might be, really? might have, it might have, of, uh, not of this one, of um, uh, Sailor Steve Costigan, okay? He's a little bit happy ah. about this story, but that okay. one was, was uh, Mark Finn did that with yeah. a couple of fans. It's somewhere, I heard it online somewhere. Yeah. It was very good. Yeah. Good. So, and, okay, he might have the connections and have gotten permission. I don't know. It's but, public uh, domain now. This wasn't published in his lifetime, that's and right. that's what makes it weird. Yes, it does. Because, yeah. it, because, it, wasn't, because it was rejected, it wasn't actually purchased, and he didn't make any money off of it. Now it's still under copyright in the U.S. for another you know, 30 years, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. The U.S. system is weird. Yeah, it's weird. They're all, the, all of them are weird. Not necessarily whether our system is good. 70 years is way too long, I think. But at least it makes sense because you can figure out when did someone die. and then. No, you can't. Ambrose Bierce, we don't know when he died. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes people vanish. Uh, you can, mean, you, you, the, the song and you don't even know who so wrote famous. it a lot of the time. He probably is dead by now, but we don't know. <laughs> we, we know that there are lots of stories that exist who we don't, like, you know the guy who wrote Treasure the Sierra Madre? We don't know who that guy was. Oh, yes. B.B. Treven. We don't, uh, yes. He's, right? Um, he's, maybe he's so German. Maybe. He was. He was right. like half the stuff published German. by Midwood. No one knows who actually uh, Indeed. Him. So the, the systems are stupid. Uh, mm-hmm. we got to fight them as best we can. That being said, also, um, a lot we of got this story. Also in weird tales, there's a lot of people where you simply can't figure out who they were. You have a name, you don't know know anything. There were really, I think it was mostly, and there were a lot of authors about whom I was, uh, there was a woman in weird tales who had a werewolf story. I was not able to find out anything about this woman, because, except that she shared a name with a woman, with some woman who does uh, makeup tips on Instagram and who kept <laughs> coming up. Not well, the same person the woman is my who, guess. who wrote a story in Weird Tales in 1932 or something. But, uh, so uh, this story, very, very reminiscent of another uh, by Robert E. Howard in plot. Uh, and I guess he does this a lot where he recycles plots. But um, it's the treasure. Especially when one doesn't sell. Uh, yes. Uh, it's the... Um, well, that one did, and it actually was, it's on the cover of Weird Tales. It's, um, The Fire of Asher Banapal. I think, did that sell uh, after this, though? Before? I, uh, well, that one sold. <laughs> um, but it all this one did not. I don't know when this was it, written. Do you know, Connor? I think 27? is the date I found, but I'm not sure how accurate it is and if they actually know. 27 slash 28? have to. I found something that was supposedly written in 1928, which would, uh, would put it around the time of the earliest Kull and uh, 
and um, Solomon Kane stories. But I'm not sure if it really was that early because it seems a bit, uh, I would say it was, that's the only thing I found. I'm not sure how accurate this is and if the manuscript was dated. The person so, who knows the guy who's, who, who analyzes the manuscript, Patrice Louinet, whom I don't know about this. No, personally, but he is the guy who analyzes the manuscript and can probably tell you when everything was written. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, um, he's a French guy. Uh, guy from the he does his PhD on on, uh, on Robert E. Howard or something. It's a Sorbonne. Wow. Okay. So, what was his name again? Just so I can Patrice that down. Lunier. Patrice Lunier. I put his name in the chat. Thank you. If thank you, you very much. The, we actually talked yeah, about him. He occasionally goes to the Howard days, and um, if you know any of the Howard Howard uh, Society people, they, they should know him okay. if you want to contact him. Cool. Um, I was thinking, so I think yeah, the, the date that I had for this story being written was about 27, 28. Um, and when I was doing a bit more research, um, I, was, uh, I was seeing that he was trying. He had sold some stuff. To weird tales but he was trying to um get into some new markets so i think specifically the blue book and mm-hmm. adventure this is magazine a blue book story absolutely yeah adventure he, was, he also he submitted something to argosy as well i'm not sure whether this i don't think this would really fit into argosy yeah, um it would. a blue book um, and argosy are very similar but yeah um so and it, it would like if this was the time period and he was trying to sell to those magazines, then this story does make sense in terms of its content. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's really, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very like an adventure story, but it, I think leans heavily towards the romance angle, um, more than the adventure aspect of it. It's, it, it would very much shock me if this was written quite late because it's simple. It's very simple. And then the other thing that, is so interesting about it, especially in reading it in context with the Valeria backup story and Savage Sword of Conan adaptation, um, is that it, it doesn't use historical stuff <laughs> as much as it should, given how yeah, good. He didn't put a bunch of research into it. That's right. Yeah. Um, so what he's done is he's made up a nice setup for a story, a little romance. It's a very simple story. And there's a, a fight scene, and then the the background sort of Lovecraftian horror temple. Um, it's not Mayan. It's pre-Mayan. It's not Aztec. It's pre-Aztec. It's something else. And then the 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 two names. What were the name of the the people who have this temple? I can't Mog- remember. Mogar. Mogar. And then the bad guy. What's his name? Go war. Gower. Gower. Go war is literally how it's spelled, right? But <laughs> it's W E R. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, in any case, um, he didn't do enough there, right? He needed to distinct. So maybe he, maybe this is not finished for sale. Um, we, I, I just finished show noting Al Murek and we had a long good talk about Al Murek. Um, <laughs> this is much, less substantial as a, a physical object, right? It's size-wise. But it's more polished in some places. And yet, it doesn't feel like a mature Robert E. Howard rich story. And yet, I almost like want it to be. Story. There's something weird about how simple the the temple scene is. Like, 
Yes, yeah. yeah. He would have minded more in, and I mean, similar trap, trap laden temples show up in a lot, lot of cultures. Fire of Ashurbanipal. This is, and also, yes, that. Fire of Ashurbanipal. And also, this reminds me of a lot of the lesser Conan stories, story. the ones which usually got to cover, but which are not uh, often, uh, what is it called, shadows in the moonlight. There's a couple of these lesser Conan stories. If this was, stories. if this and was, this was a list. reminded me a lot of them, and uh, they often also have this. I mean, the trap laden temple shows up again in Queen of the Black Coast. Yeah, it does and, have uh, a very oh, Shadows in the Moonlight feel with the gender yeah. flip. It does, yes. Right? And, like, the point of view character is not the real badass. The point of view character is kind of following <laughs> the badass around. But in this case, the point of view character is the nice really, sailor boy. It's actually really interesting to have such a pretty, to have such a formidable female character. This, but I mean, it seems to me that because everybody always says like, oh, Howard's women were simple and simple, simple until he met Noble in Price. But he started writing stronger, more interesting women characters way before, before Noble in Price. And nothing against Noble in she, she the, the relationships become a bit more realistic and the uh, romantic scenes. But um, he did, uh, I think Howard liked writing stronger women characters, but had problems selling the stories, the stories. Mm. I mean, he never sold Dark Agnes. And, yeah, um, yeah. So also, it's interesting. What I find interesting, I mean, I mean, we have this masked knight guy in the Towers of Thunder, which is basically, an, uh, basically a sort of throwaway scene where this guy, where the masked knight is, un- is unmasked and is a woman, it's a right. woman, which was published um, almost two years before the first Gerald of Glory story, as the Amour, which is probably also why I think Howard started write, started writing these stronger woman characters again because he saw Seal Moore was selling that sort of thing, so maybe he could too, but. I think he liked to write them earlier than than most. Well, of she's masked think. here. She's she's a flop, yeah, it's, right? It's another. It's a similar setup. Like, oh, we think it's a, oh, it's a man, but him, this guy is kind of slight. Oh, wow, it's a woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's another. It's another version of the. the she pulls the motorcycle helmet off. The yeah, exactly. <laughs> the curls. Well, the, the curls. Exactly, and like one thing when I was reading this that I kept on thinking about was how. The whole setup and their relationship, um, where there's sort of some drama and stuff like that, it just feels very modern. Like it, it's been incorporated into so many different stories mm. from that point on, right? Like there's this kind of, um, they're a bit adversarial at first and they kind of win each other's respect mm. and so on. Um, that's like, I don't know whether this, that was just sort of emerging as a trope in stories at that time or, um, she's she, she's a competent baby. woman in a field mm. that men are dominant in, and that is something I think we can largely attribute to Robert E. Howard. Uh, Anne Bonny, uh, who I think you know could be the model for Helen Taverell in here. Was another one? Mary Reed is the other one. Yeah, there was several female. We know that there were several female. Well, they're the, they're the right They were not period. particularly proud of their virtue, though. That's the funny yeah. part, right? Yeah, <laughs> that was the, a bit weird. It's so strange in, in the comic book adaptation, which you know blends together very much in my mind uh, in the reading. Uh, Valeria is not Valeria from Red, Red Nails. And the reason she's not is she starts crying. Yeah, Valeria mm. would not cry. Valeria would but, not cry. Not about that. Yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> and, crying was also, it was like, okay, honestly, no, you're crying that, that he thinks you're, that you think you're having an affair with this other pirate who's, who's her adopted. But once, one line is really interesting. Helen says at one point, though, fate has made a woman of me. I have lived a man's life. Which is a statement that we find in similar forms, uh, 
forms in I mean it's interesting that this one was never sold and we don't know if if any of us if we ever sent it to CL Moore Moore and the other correspondents so we don't know if anybody ever read it but it's uh, but we have Lyrell of Lori saying similar things later on we have Valeria saying similar things in Red Nails uh, almost uh, eight years later and we have um, and we have um, we did Black Amazon of Mars. Mars, Sierra, the lead character, the female, the, the black Amazon of Mars, also says something very similar. Yeah, and we were talking about Shakespeare mm-hmm. earlier. It reminds me slightly of Lady Macbeth as well. <sighs> and her sort she's, of desi- she's, yeah, keep going. Well, I was just going to say her desire to live a man's life, but she was born a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Uh, what's what's so interesting to me about that scene where she starts crying is she says yeah it was virtue right is that you you question my virtue a, a second before that she would just like claim that she'd killed a whole bunch of people yeah. <laughs> i was like virtue only has to do with very one very narrow thing here right which means not having sex with all the men on the ship um the way I have to think about it is like, if we go back to Red Nails, where we've got the real Valeria, not this fake Valeria that Roy Thomas has cooked up to make this a more Conan-y tale. Conan replaces one of the... An adjacent. Yeah, it's, it, it makes it set in the same universe. Uh, it should have... That backup story, which is very beautifully illustrated by John Buscema, um, and which uses most of the text of the story... Uh, it's a surprisingly close adaptation. It's surprisingly close. You know, they replace uh, rocks and uh, knives with the flint locks, right? But it didn't need to be done that way. And making Valeria cry, if we go back to Red Nails and we look at what Valeria is doing there, right? She's saying, uh, I'm a competent player. Um, I don't have birth control. <laughs> I have no birth control. Conan, I am not going to be one of your ladies who's, uh, you know, pregnant and no no spousal support. She It's not that she doesn't like men. It's not that she's trying to keep her reputation. It's, I don't have any birth control, right? Like, mm. uh, we're in the f- middle of a jungle. You're hot for me. That's fine. And, uh, you know, you're a handsome and competent man. I'm a competent woman, and more importantly, I know about the fact that I have no birth control. She doesn't ever say that, but that's why her virtue matters, not because mm. it's people are going to disrespect her. Whereas in this setting, uh, I, and I felt how immature Howard was in just talking about how he deals with the pirates. Like, it, our main hero, it, it's interesting, there's a slight change. Um, in the uh, adaptation, his name is Metallus, right? Uh, of what's he? What country is he from? Uh, I don't know. Argos. Are we talking? Yeah, it, John. Uh, oh, in in the adaptation. In the adaptation, and it's also called okay. the Island yeah. of Pirates Doom. I don't know why he changed it from Isle. Uh, so uh, he's his name is Metallus, and he was a sailor, but he was a merchant sailor, and he's the owner of the ship. Whereas in this story, he's just a sailor, and he's a th- He's a mate, right? Which is, uh, you know, it's not at the bottom and it's not at the top, but it's not definitely the owner of a ship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened? There was a fire on his ship. He escaped. 
this is a Robinson Crusoe setup. Um, but the thing is, is he wasn't the owner of that ship like Robinson Crusoe was, right? Or in that case, no, he's he, just a he's just a regular sailor. He's a regular sailor, and he has contempt for pirates. Which, in reality, a sailor should be sort of like pirates are dangerous; they might kill me, right? But they're not contemptuous in the sense that they're slavers because they're anti-slavers. So, like, he's kind of a little naive here. And Roy Thomas leans into his ability to tell the story. We see a picture of Metallus writing down the story, right, that we're, we're getting. Whereas with the story we're getting from Connor, we could be hearing this in a tavern, right? We don't know yeah. where this story... Sounds like a... It does sound a bit like like guy in the tavern tells a story. <laughs> yeah, and it's it takes place over two and a half days, right? There's one night... I think... Uh... Three yeah. days, if I'm right. Well, it's, no, it's, it's three the days. The, the first day, day, the second day, the last day. That, right. That's how they yeah. are late. Yeah, and so it's it's like two and a half days that takes and place. And they're somewhere. very, very careful not to sleep in the same cave, even though they're, though they're on an island full of evil pirates and snakes. Well, yeah. yeah. Heaven be there that, they, that uh, Helen and Stephen sleep in the same cave. That would not she, be good for gotta keep Helen's her virtue. Right? <laughs> I don't I also wonder whether this uh, wasn't uh, wasn't uh, an attempt of Howard to write to market to this focus on female virtue because um, he was trying to sell this and uh, yes, it's not a spicy. If, uh, <laughs> if the market was something like Blue Book or Argosy or Adventure, they were not really the places where you could have. Uh, they were not really magazines where you yeah, I mean, it wasn't sexual content was not. Welcome. The Tales is fairly open with regard to sex for the time. It's Think not of how Belit is marketed, right? Open. She's nude. Nude. Right? Belit, yeah. you know, this woman has a hat. She's got a big coat, right? She is big a, she's, yeah, she's a pirate, but she's, she's covering up because the sun be strong, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the rapier she's got, it's, it's all, it's all great, but it's very different. It's a, it's so if he is marketing it towards, towards, uh, blue book or adventure, I think what he really goes wrong is not doing that research on the temple. And the thing is, is he's smart enough to know that pirates don't bury treasure on islands, right? That, that is only from one story and a treasure island. Uh, and uh, everybody thinks pirates bury treasure on islands. That's not what they do. They take their treasure. And they spend it. <laughs> they go, <laughs> they go <laughs> immediately to port, and they start drinking. They drink Have it. you ever seen Blackbeard's Ghost? No. The 60s Disney movie? No. It's got um, Is that Dean the one Jones with Peter Ustinov? Yeah, Peter Ustinov plays Black, uh, Blackbeard. That's, uh, I've seen that. A long time ago, but I've seen it. So it was the 1960s. It's got Elsa Lancaster in it as a descendant of Blackbeard. Nice. And... You know, he's Blackbeard's a ghost, and this guy accidentally sort of raises this ghost, and the, it's, the ghost is haunting him, and he can't get rid of him until he he has to make him do something good, right? He's like, "Hey, tell you what, tell me where you buried your your treasure, and I can use it to bail out these old ladies." And he's like, "The treasure?" He goes, "Yeah, that you buried, right? There's this legend, this huge treasure you buried right here." And he goes, "No, nah, man, we we spend every bit of that like in, in one in one week in Jamaica. We spent the whole treasure. yeah." He's, Really? They're living yes. hard drinking. Like, yeah, pirates. That's what we did. Well, <laughs> they gambled and they pirates. spent their money. Klaus Störtebecker actually gave parts. He is also a kind of Robin Hood figure. He donated uh, parts of his treasure to the church in his hometown, hometown to donate some windows, which are gone now because they were destroyed. And he also donated 
money to the hometown to feed salted herrings to the poor to the to poor people, and they still the, to this day we have an actor dressed up as Sturtebecker, Becker, and um, and they, to this day they still distribute uh, herring, and they have this actor actor um, give a speech and everything. I, I translated a press release about the uh, 2019 or 20 was it 20 no 20 wasn't it was cancelled. But they do this to this day. Yeah, he has this Robin Hood. Uh, he has a lot of legends surrounding surrounding him. Klaus Dörterdecker. He's also the guy who had his head. He actually was caught. And he was a real pirate. He was caught and executed. He preyed on Hansa, on the merchant ship of the Hanseatic League, and he was caught and executed in Hamburg. And uh, and they dug up a skull. They might be his and uh, reconstructed it. And uh, they and uh, think he asked his last wish, and he said like, I want to go. I want to, once that all of my comrades are set free when I go past them with my head chopped off. And he said, yeah, yeah. And, and he still, and he walked past all of his 20 comrades or so with his, uh, the headless corpse walked past all 20 comrades or so and they were set free. Not really. Oh they God. found a lot of, they found a lot of, he- of heads at the place where they, and they were obviously heads of executed people who were likely pirates because they were on the, because they were on the harbor. Okay. <laughs> so they did not keep the promise that we know, but uh, <laughs> we don't know story, if he managed to, to walk without a, without a hat for a while. But this is a really famous, every German, every North German kid knows the story of Klaus Stürtebecker. And we all think he's really, really awesome. <laughs> cool. Anyway, that's a story awesome. treasure. But Indian tribes, with the Spanish coming after them, did hide treasure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, if you wanted so. to go back to the treasure, then of course you would hide it, <laughs> but... Uh, so uh, the 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 temple here is awesome, right? I, I I wanted way more of that. I wanted much more backstory. I wanted him to do the work that I, like I feel he did more work on that uh fire of Ashen at Banapal, which is pretty bullshitty itself. Um but at least you know there's the rumors, you know, we get the rumors in there's here. There's the as legend well. about the finding the gems the yeah. the coming up and the curse and there's a whole there's a cool backstory there. And, this and there's, just like, there's an evil... There's a tribe. Yeah, so, but this one turns out, it's it's all like it's a mechanic, mechanism, and there's like metal. It's like, yeah. it, and it's like okay, that's dumb. Uh, the temple's awesome, but I was thinking like, this metal, story... A bit difficult, and that's a bit difficult in a pre, uh, pre-Mayan, yeah. pre-Aztec, pre-Columbian civilization on an island yeah. so iron <laughs> shadows in the moon or shadows in the moonlight which we've done a show on is uh, the same thing there's an island it's in the villette right we think um there's pirates there's uh a girl and conan and they're on the run and they hide in the temple uh and the pirates attack and then the iron monsters monster pirates. gods come out of the moon um, and get their revenge. And so it's kind of similar, right? But because we've got this elder race, the pre-Caribs, as we're told, um, it's not, it's not tied into like Lovecraftian way. It should, like, if you read his yeah. Lovecraft I stories. I was actually waiting for some kind of Lovecraftian story. It totally could use it because at least then we've got like, he, he wrote a bunch of great, uh, Cthulhu mythos stories, right? Like they're just, solid Lovecraft pastiche with action. This one would include romance. That's awesome. And it doesn't. It doesn't have that. And so this story, like, it's fine. It's good. 
I can see, like, but it didn't need to be adapted into a Valeria story. I would just, like, polished up that idea of, like, who are the people who are this temple and why is their revenge, you know, working out this way? Like, there's a gem at the bottom. Like, the blood, the blood, he's so good at the, the scene. So when the, 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 they crack through the altar, which is stained with blood, right? And mm-hmm. they see the, the gem and it's attached to the bottom of the hidden altar thing. And he pulls it up. Um, the best part of the story is not any of that stuff. It's when the blood comes down and gushes out of them, right? It's like one last blood sacrifice. Uh, oh yeah. That's it's cool. yeah. awesome um, image. It's so good, uh, but it doesn't pay off because we didn't have enough setup. They're walking up to the gallows. Just earlier he said Uh. it looked as if those two pirates, uh, when they went up to the altar, were walking up to the gallows. And of course, they'll be stable yet. But uh, wasn't the, it's been a while since I read it, in Queen of the Black Coast, when they also tried to get to the treasure, wasn't there also a mechanism? Yeah, trapped altar. There was also, I think it was a mechanical trap which killed someone. They move the altar and some columns fall down on them and kill. Yeah, so, similar setup. But of course, I, I, there's also the wing to pre human, human evolutionary. But it has that Fire extra. Master Banapol, you mentioned a couple times, yeah. had two endings, right? There was right. the weird version and there was the desert adventure version. That's right. And the desert adventure, like, there was a snake on the skull and the guy got bit and he died. It was a snake bite. And like, oh, Which happens in this. Button, right? right. But in the, the weird version, there's an actual demon yes. know, that comes out of the wall and eats people. And the it's, demon it's version's very, better. Yeah, it it is, and it this is calls <laughs> out for a Weird Tales version. Like, yes. I would love to see this rewritten to be a Weird Tales version instead of a I, you know a booby trap where it all kind of falls down. You you know, there's an actual curse, and, and you don't need to make, make it, it a Conan Valeria thing. You can just no, no. keep it exactly as it is, but pump up the Cthulhu element, pump up the story behind behind the why this temple is and and the vengeance. The anger, the hatred, throwing their, the, the part, the one good part about that backstory is whoever these people were, they threw their, their gems into the sea. That's cool. But why do they even have gems? Right? Because they're shiny. <laughs> yeah. Because pirates want them. Uh, that doesn't yeah. make any sense if it's a Cthulhu thing, right? The, the reason it you could... have, go for it. Oh no, sorry. You keep going. Oh, the reason yeah. you have a, uh, a a little thing hidden away in a temple is because you're a lich, and that's your like little life force storage thing, right? The reason you have reliquary, or yeah, a reliquary, that yeah. Is- um, it, whatever, whatever the reason for it, it can't be the same old thing that the the pirates want. Um, what if, what if the thing under there is like, uh, a feather from, uh, an alien space god? That's not going to do you any good selling in the market, right? Um, but it would be more comprehensible as a kind of reason for whatever's going on. It, it, it does Maybe call the out. Zems, uh, were the hearts of, of people like Yakasha from, uh, um, exactly. That, that story <laughs> kicks ass in terms of, the work being done to make it, it turns it into a different kind of story at the end, right? Whereas this, at the end, we actually have a sort of uh, the Valerius character. She's she's like, uh, you're going to pretend to. Uh, he says to her, Metallus says, "You're going to pretend to be my sister," right? And in our original story, it's actually the same in both. I, I'm not sure why I'm 
Yeah, I Probably. think he, he offers to marry her, but he, but he actually is like, oh, but I'm too young to marry him. Right, so I need more adventures. My, my guardian pirate for, for permission. Right. And I don't know where he is. Actually, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, I mean, she's it's 20. Of calling out yes. for sequel, but um, of she's course, 20 years old. Never like told. he never wrote the he never wrote the sequel. <laughs> it's true. It, it, it doesn't really make sense. Um, it doesn't, and I can see why if Blue Book was offered it, or Adventure was offered it, the, he's not doing enough work to explain this island. Like, it's just it, all the all the writing is really good. The writing is solid. It's fine, um, but the m- motivation for this, you know, why didn't you just make it an Aztec temple? I don't understand. Yeah, like uh, he kind of dashed this off, and he didn't want to have to put in a bunch of research. And I think that's really it. He just want because um okay so maybe when there was a new market that he was trying to break into, like sometimes it seems like there were markets that were just so um hot at the time it was like anything that was written no matter the quality was getting bought, mm-hmm. and maybe he was just really like let's just not put I'm not going to put like days and days into this I'm going to make this story I'm going to see whether there's any bites in this market. Right. Argosy Adventure and Blue Book were all long established by this point. Mm-hmm. They were not new, hot new. It wasn't something yeah. like Spicy's or the Spicy Mystery Stories he did. Was it Spicy Mystery? At any rate, the Spicy Stories he did, or or even the ones for the, the fight stories and stories and action mm. stories. But there's those boxing stories. He leaves himself open for more stories, though. At the end of this, right? Ha- Helen, it could be a Helen Taverell series. And the thing is, is this story? She's very much like, I'm going to have more adventures. That's right. The camera. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> he breaks the first wall, almost. <laughs> and uh, uh, our Steve Harmer is his last name, right? Harmer. Yeah. Interesting <laughs> last name. And Taverell. They're very interesting names. Um, I don't. Well, I don't think he's a character that really works in the same. Like uh, when you see Metallus uh, and Valeria walking together through the jungle, she starts comparing him to Conan, right? <laughs> And the thing is, is that all happens in the story. It's just not to Conan. It's to some other figure. Roger. Right? Roger yeah, Roger Farrell. 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 Right. Adoptive um, pirate dad. Adoptive right. pirate dad who's also an Irish aristocrat and uh, trained as a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, he's, he sounds like, like he should be medical, in the story, right? That the medical background always comes up again because, of course, Howard's father was a country doctor. That's right. And uh, mm. you can see in the stories that Howard knew, knew a bit about, uh, about medicine and... Uh, and for example, everybody, if someone is wounded, you always see their wounds being treated, uh, treated, which doesn't happen in other pub stories. So he, mm. and it's interesting because he basically, yes, sort of, okay, his father was not an Irish aristocrat. <laughs> but, uh, I think he probably wrote this own, over a couple uh, of days at most. Takes his, own, um, his own biography and uh, more or less pastes it onto, uh, Hel- onto Helen and adds, uh, adds in some piracy. Okay, so, um, it's, the the name Steve is really interesting. One of his favorites. Right? That should be on your chart, the by the way. Yeah, name. character names. Lots of there Steve's. is eight individual <laughs> Steves, which are yeah. different characters, not the same <laughs> yep. person. Different characters called Steve. In, um, in, I think there's even two Steve Costigans, isn't there? There's the one in well, this uh, semi-autobiographic novel, and then of course the sailor. There's yes, and. I was going to bring up this semi-autobiographical novel, Post Oaks and Sand Ruffs, it's called. So never sold, um, but this was uh, 
yeah, Howard trying to write um, about living in the town, right? And his character in the story, who is him, mm-hmm. right, I believe is called Steve Costigan. Is uh, so, and this is before he made the other character, right? So I always feel like, like this this example where he writes this autobiographical uh, novel is like the most explicit example where he has a character called Steve mm-hmm. who is meant to be him, right? But and because of that, I always feel like when you see Steve, when you see this name, you get this sense that Howard is putting a bit of himself into that character. Mm. Right. It is in some way, maybe a bit of a self insert. Of course. Um, so, um, I wonder one thing I was also going to say in terms of, um, this story, like Alex, you suggested that this one could be rewritten and really, uh, patched up a little bit into a much better story. Um, I think this, yeah, I think it's, it would do that. And even though I, I'm not a big fan of when people edited Howard's stories later, I think this one could really, um, do with it because yeah, there's just a few off things, um, in the ending. But one of the other examples, um, where <laughs> that happens in a later story, um, uh, you said that this similar situation happens in the fire of Asher Banapal. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens in the gods of Balsagoth as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's set up and paid off much better. Uh, then in this story, I can't remember the fire of Ashurbanipal, but, um, there's like a lot of poetic irony in that story mm-hmm. where somebody is crushed by a statue of a god. <laughs> um, right. So it's set up really well and there's a really nice payoff. If anything, like even though this story was just a kind of a bit average, um, it was good because he clearly played with it and maybe realized that it has to be a more important, um, the, the setup has to be better and has to have more of a payoff. And then he went on to use that in other stories to better effect than in this one. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to tell you how you can picture the payoff scene in fire of Asher Banapal. Okay. Uh, the movie series, starting with Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, Indiana Jones, highly yeah. influenced by Robert E. Howard. Like, he he probably ha- is... Directly? Like, well, we, let I me show you. Intermediaries. Like, uh, yes. Lucas was watching serials which were inspired by Howard. Yes. So, yeah. the scene in the first Raider, in the first movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where uh, our two, our hero and heroine are tied up, right, together, uh, while the bad guy uh, working for the Nazis is uncovering the Ark of the Covenant, right? And he's in, he's doing this Jewish ritual to open it up and bless everything. And then what does uh, our hero say to our heroine? Close your eyes, right? Don't look. And hmm. then we watch... Uh, I, I, this is the funny part. In the, When I was watching this, I was like, should I close my eyes? And I'm like... <laughs> covering them up so I don't want to have whatever badness is coming because I know something bad's coming. And we see all the Nazis getting killed in various ways. One is like melted and the other one's head explodes and another one, I don't know, just screams. One burns up. Yeah, and that's exactly what happens in a Fire of Asher Banapal. They have the reveal that there's this, this jewel and the bad guys have got it and the two heroes, not heroines uh, in this case, um, Look away and don't witness the the thing that happens directly, and 
then are free. And at the end of that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, not only did they survive while all the Nazis died, they also mysteriously have their bonds cut like God said, hey, yeah, that was really good. nice. <laughs> like, yeah, how'd that yeah. happen? It's just, I mean, you know. Um, that was a, uh, if it was, a, so if it was a Judeo-Christian, or in this case, it was a Jewish God, the Jewish or Judeo-Christian God, he was really nice to even cut their bonds and uh, explode. <laughs> yeah. I have to admit, the first time I actually, I only, I didn't see this. I was too young to see that to see Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater. Mm-hmm. Theater. So uh, I didn't see the first one I saw was um, Temple of Doom, right. and I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark much later on TV. And when I saw it, and they started, I was like, okay, yeah, Nazis are going to going to want a Jewish. Uh, Okay, maybe they want a Jewish artifact, but they're not going to do a Jewish ritual. Sorry, sorry, it was a bunch of nazis that I I couldn't get beyond this. And okay, (laughs) well, what was so interesting is that that should have happened in here. Like uh, one of the characters, uh, the Valeria character, what's her name? Helen. Helen. Helen Taverell. Right. Helen Taverell or Metallus slash Steve should have had some like knowledge. Of what's going on here, or some way of dealing with it, and then that should have been the thing that protected them from the destruction, yeah. and that would have been a much be better something. payoff. I mean, there is an ancient legend about this. There is a legend that there's this island that there's a treasure. So why isn't there a legend about a curse? <laughs> yes, a curse. Mm-hmm. and and our... really, I was waiting for the I was waiting for the monster to the Shutlu or whatever Sulu monster to show up. Steve Harmer like has been on this island uh just uh, like a, a few week. days, right? Yeah. Um we 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 have a Robinson Crusoe setup and it's like he's just happened to have been shipwrecked right before. Okay, I buy it. And then uh the sh- pirates come. Okay, I buy it. And then they go to the beach and okay, there's a nice ship, uh, there's a bad ship. Oh no, it's a nice ship. I there's too many like easy coincidences and <laughs> it just it sort of happens to them right mm. and and we it, like it's it's a it's more of a meat cute of a story than it should be when it comes to like the substantive part of the story should be the the mythology built up behind it he's sort of just skating on his his good writing skills at this point in the story and and it is that research that would really have paid off uh and made it something special and made one of the characters or the other one say like how, how he gets conked on the head Steve Harmer a couple times right yeah. um that's a way of that's a way of doing things um he gets disabled in one arm and she you know heals him after he re- releases her it's a way of doing things, but is it the best way? No, this is not his best work. And it could be so much improved by him just doing what he later does and just like really kicking ass with, with thinking. I'm surprised he never got, never went back to it and tried to sell it to, um, and weirded it up a little bit. I think he, I think he wrote those Conan stories. Uh, uh yeah, you know. Okay. Probably he just reused the ideas as a Conan story and, um, he's he got the, dyna- he's got the, the dynamic of red nails in here, right? Where they're, they're off on a quest together. They're, you know, there's a little back and forth. Um, but he, he makes it more, she, you know, Valeria is a much better character than Helen Taverell. Even though Helen Tavril's set in the real world, I don't buy her as 
I buy Valeria. Valeria is like yeah. interesting. <laughs> she's a mass murdering pirate who's also prepared to break yeah, down and cry. Uh, Helen starts crying. <laughs> yeah. I, I was crying Helen until she starts crying and is really concerned about her vote. Because like, Helen, hello girl, you're your pirate on a pirate ship. Everybody thinks you. Everybody <laughs> probably thinks you're sleeping with the whole crew. <laughs> Even if you don't. Mm. And what does it matter? If someone insults you, you can just kill them. That's what Valeria actually did, did and right. would have done. Right. Mm. She's, it's, it's she's, it feels kind of juvenile, right? Like Howard wrote yes. it when he was young. And it feels yeah. like a juvenile work. He yeah. would have been 22 when he wrote this one. So uh, also... Yeah. He did not yet have a lot. I mean, he had obviously he had, he had sexual experiences. We know that that he went to Mexico and had sexual experiences, and um, and he did know women. But he, let's say he hasn't really had a lot of experience with women at this point. I think this is no. more of a story problem. I think he really just didn't spend enough time doing the research to it make it. Both. It's a good story. It's just not like it doesn't knock it out of the park. And even when people poop on Veil of Lost Women, that thing works. It it makes it pisses people off. Yes, it's got a lot of scary uh, images uh, in it, but it cooks as a story. It pisses people off is the, the racism of the story. Yeah, but, yeah, um, it hurts people. Uh, there's no racism also, in here. Also, like the the implied raping, in, is, yeah. is pretty intense. In oh, it's Lost it's horrible slavery, and that's very powerful. Yeah, it's terrible, but um, it's it's very very viscerally written. This, the, this the feels the like problem with the veil of the lost women is just that the end is sort of like it's just have uh, it just it's almost it's like an okay, what do ending. I do now? Oh, it's an I just have monster show up. <laughs> That's a bit. Uh, but uh, the beginning of the story, in spite of the gross racism, is uh, grossly racist or grossly racist. Yeah. Super strong images. But not every black person is bad. Conan is running around with a bunch of black black warriors. As a, so, but um, it's very very it's very very visceral. And of course, that's the story mm. also where Conan basically says, um, I'm not raping, I'm not going to force women into sex, which is, uh, which, um, is something that a lot of people always think like, oh, Conan is this terrible rapist, and he's not. He doesn't rape women. It's, it, it, work, it, it cooks as an outline, though. Whereas this one, like, if you look at it and you say, well, this happens, this happens, this happens, you say, that sounds like it could be good. You don't say, oh my God, mm. right? Uh, it's the, it is, it's not just the execution. It's also like what he put into it. And I think it feels like he, he wrote it too quickly because he didn't do the research that caught it. But, but it also, if we think of this as the research for stories like Red Nails and At Fire Sebastian Banapal and, you know, even Queen of the Black the Coast. Yeah, Iron Shadows and Moonlight. Then, then you say, well, this, this is the Pool necessary of the Black work. One is also kind of similar. Pool of the Black One? A, okay. I haven't read that one. Um, it's also, it's Conan on a pirate ship Good. and he basically takes the over the pirate. Swims up on pirate, the ship in the middle of the ocean. Walks up with a pirate's girlfriend <laughs> and they all end up in a, on an island with a legendary treasure only Ooh. that's a Sounds really good. creepy, non-human, Non-human, very big, uh, big sort of uh, described as black, but pale, but drawn as blue in the artwork. Giants who ha- who do really weird rituals in the temple and turn people into little stone figures. Okay, so it's, a it's a really weird story. It's a very weird story. It's a cone story. A giant is exploding what? It's a green pool that shoots a fountain like a mile up in the air, and then it crashes down in this stream of death, fu- chasing them through the jungle. Cool. Yeah, it's. it's- 
It's kind of weird. It's, it's a weird story. It's a really, really strange. It's a really, really strange Conan story, especially since it's uh, because you think it's just going to be a pirate uh, pirate sto- story, and then suddenly it's uh, there on the island of weirdness. But it yeah, is but it, a bit. It's another part, one which seems to this one seems to be a prototype for that story. The best part though is at the very beginning. There's this pirate ship, and like the pirate's girlfriend is lounging on the deck, and Conan just climbs up on the over the rail <laughs> ship in the middle of the ocean. She's like, "Who are you? Where'd you come from?" I'm like, Conan. I was swimming. Like, from where? Like, Whatever. <laughs> apparently, he was apparently was thrown overboard by another out. ship because it. <laughs> that that it sounds good. Uh, so I, I want to talk a little bit about the weird. Uh, you y'all read the adaptation? It's quite long. It's. Yeah, it, it's almost longer than the story, actually. I know, like, I, I'm holding the paper in my hand, and it's like, it's a big ream of paper, right? Like, I printed this thing up, and it took a while to read, because it basically has everything in it. But one of the things that's different is because it's the adaptation, you know, they don't have the firearms, they, they have they have to change the place names, the names of the sailors, they're not from Spain, they're from whatever country it is, Right. Uh, what's uh, Spain? Uh, Samora, I think, is Spain. Yeah. In, um, the Argos, whatever. It doesn't matter. The important part is when they get to the scenes where she's t- she's Valeria and she's talking about Conan, she's actually talking about her... Well, Helen is talking about her dad or her, her adopted father, right? Mm-hmm. Where And so there's a sexual jealousy... That is present in the Valeria story, which I like. I'm like, why? Who is this Metallus guy? Why should I care about him at all? Like, I think fundamentally, <laughs> they Roy Thomas fucked up. He shouldn't have made this a Valeria story, because if you put Conan in that role, Valeria yeah. doesn't think of Conan as her dad. No, it just makes Valeria make no sense. Mm. It's just stupid, and. And the story works if you don't like if you didn't know who Conan was, <laughs> and then you find out that Conan is her dad at the end. Like you change it, <laughs> like, you can yeah, change the, the names, but the, the, you can't change the relationship, for, like, and not have it have no difference, right? If they wanted this to be a story about Valeria, they should have made it a story about Valeria pre Red Nails, a pre meeting Conan. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it, it isn't. It's post, which is stupid. Yeah, it, I mean, it uh, should have been backstory. It should have been Valeria backstory. Old Valeria. Yeah, no, it's stupid. It could have been a Valeria prequel, and it would have. I mean, it would have worked. It, it uh, would have worked much better because she she could be a little more immature and more likely to cry at things, and more importantly, she could have a backstory that is not explained when we meet her in Red Nails, we never find out why Valeria joined the Red Brotherhood. Right? Never explained. Here, we've got an explanation. Uh, yeah, this and, would be, uh, this would have made a good Valeria prequel or Valeria original story. Yes. And, uh, okay, the Metallus guy, they, they might have broken up because Valeria likes uh, adventuring too much and so on. He might have, he would have, and actually they don't, she doesn't agree to marry him at the end. But, but even so, says, like, yeah, maybe. But first of all, you have to talk to my my pirate dad, and also, I'm I don't want to get married just yet. But even so, like making Metallus a merchant, so that that was his ship. It it's again Roy Thomas sort of misunderstanding 
like what what makes Roy Thomas a good writer of comics is that he looks at what Robert E. Howard wrote and he writes it down on the other page, right? Like he's like, okay, Robert E. Howard says this, okay, uh, uh, this is what I'm going to say. He just copies. He's a copier, right? And then he says, which is great, and we love that about him. Exactly. And yeah, so when he makes yes, a decision, when he makes a decision that is not possible because he's making uh, he's adapting it to a conan story or in this case a valeria story they're often bad decisions because he he's not in he's not a robert e howard clone he cannot think of the way robert e howard would changing him from being a uh a, a, a mate on a ship to a merchant owner of a ship that is like a, a, a huge class change right one is a hired worker and the other, you know, working sailor, there's nothing wrong with it. And the other is like a, a guy who's trying to make business. The relationship between pirates of a mate and a owner is like, owners hate pirates. They steal my stuff. Mates yeah. say, my, my job is... Ask Kurt is... in the Hanseatic League. That's why he got beheaded, because he stole their stuff. Right. It's, and, uh... and even if he takes that treasure and he starts paying off people in town sometimes it works sometimes it don't but yeah. in also this story well, also it wasn't it wasn't a completely different town where he paid or where he paid people valeria and uh, the, the merchants he paid on the merchants from hamburg and bremen so he paid on different so he basically he had a no i think, it's, I think it was not not him it was his his his, uh, his uh, second in command who was from the town town but um that's why he has this connection to this but he also also helped people in coastal towns who hit him out and so on, who hit him and so on. Um, but he really, he hated the merchants of the Hanseatic League. So and they hated him, which is how pirates work. The, work. But the mate would have been actually an excellent mate on a ship who's just a... He's a hired he's hand. A guy who's, yeah, a hired hand. Even and his... Somewhat higher up, he would have been just as likely to join the pirates and uh, actually uh, marrying the daughter of a... Of a pirate, uh, he should become a, a pirate. pirate. Absolutely, for this guy. <laughs> Absolutely, and and so the, there's a very strange like Valeria should have contempt for merchants because they are prey, right? She doesn't have to hate them. She just thinks, oh, your ship burned. I guess somebody made a mistake. <laughs> like sad story <laughs> for you, bud. You sh- we should have taken your stuff. We don't burn your ship, right? The relationship is broken, and it's like okay, Howard doesn't understand uh, that mates mates should um, not be fearful of pirates as being slavers and murderers because he doesn't know. Um, I guess he hasn't done enough research on pirates yet. Uh, he, I think Howard had a thing for, pi- for for pirates. There are lots of photos of him dressing up as a pirate. Absolutely, he likes as it. a young man. And he liked so, it. Also, Bell it's a pirate, pirate right? He was younger, but he doesn't really know a lot about pirates. He, uh, you also, have to learn. It takes actually, some time. Um, he doesn't know a lot about uh, sailing uh, ships. So, uh, just just um, just since we happened to, upon this topic, I actually was reading about um, how Howard had he loved pirates. He loved the idea of them. Mm-hmm. But then, when I think he was in high school, he actually wrote an essay about pirates. <laughs> um, oh, really? And he, in it, he basically yeah, and. Um, this is, I read his, I read a biography of Howard recently, and this was in there. Um, and he said that he really liked the idea of it until he started learning about what happened to pirates until they were caught, right? <laughs> like, and where they would, in specifically he said, um, in the essay, 
uh, it portrayed a pirate of my acquaintance just after his execution. He's talking about a photo he saw. Mm. Um, he was fastened to the mast of a man of war by a great spike, which was driven through his head into the wood. Yikes. And his villainous features were streaked with blood and twisted with the awful agony. Um, this gruesome picture haunted me for days and caused me once and for all time to give up any thoughts of sailing under the skull and crossbones. Uh, so basically as a teenager, he was like, it would be great to be a pirate. I'd love that. And then he realized what would happen. But Actually, I think he, uh, he liked the romance. Strikes me as the sort of person what? who would have, uh, I'm surprised that he never, I mean, he strikes me as the sort of person who might have tried to run away to sea, which was still possible at this time for young men. My, I mean, yeah. my great uncle, Actually ran away to sea as a, he was a teenager just after World War One. He lived well into the he lived into the nineteen seventies and I've actually <sighs> met him. He ended up in the US he went to the US. He, I'm he guessing your brother his father was a captain, his father was a sea captain. I'm guessing your uncle had brothers. He didn't have brothers. There were only sisters. Interesting. Oh, well, at least there was uh, at least there Nick. was other brothers and uh, other sisters. Robert E. Harris the only child. Yeah, right? and that was probably also he had a sick mother. He, ha- he's an only child. He has a good sick. relationship with his mother. He has a relationship with his father. He has a duty. That's why he didn't run yeah, away to see. That's why he didn't run away to New York. That's why, right? Yeah, Everything I mean, is explained by. He could have gone. Uh, he he had the chances to go. He had the chances to go away, but he did not want to abandon his his mother and his father. I th- yeah, and I think um, like knowing a bit more about Howard's personality, he really didn't like authority. Like he really did not like authority. No, he didn't. Uh, he he wouldn't didn't have like... gotten far on a ship, I think, simply because he no. would have, at some point, at some point, gone Steve Costigan on the on the captain and <laughs> and that would have been the end of that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, I just think that, um, yeah, exactly. Like, I think he likes the idea of it and he likes the romance and the the adventure. But in terms of actually being able to do it, I don't think he was suited <laughs> too well for that life. <laughs> and the reality is something he doesn't like. It's not really, it's, in a way, it's not surprising that this, the, um, the reality of like, of, I don't know, being a pirate or the situation these people would be in isn't that well defined because he's not, he wouldn't be interested in that at all. He would be interested in the adventurous aspects mm. of it. And it's a good romance. It's fine. It, you know, it, it does what it says on the tin, but yeah, this story is, it, it, it definitely feels like it's written by Robert E. Howard, but it feels like very young and much mm. like if, if this is the research for other stories, it is well worth having been done. But, uh, I, now I want to read Pool of the Black one. That sounds good. <laughs> mm. Uh, because that sounds like it's got it's all the things. Yeah. Is there a girl? There's, you said there was a girl in it, right? There's a girl. There's a girl, yes. I forgot her name. She's not a, she's not that, she's one of the more wimpy, wimpy, but she is, no, she's not that wimpy. She actually, she's sort of, it's like she's stronger because she got kidnapped by these pirates and, and survived uh, by having sex with them. So she's, she's not someone who starts crying because someone thinks she's not a virgin. <laughs> it's uh, mm. similar to the beginning of Bale of Lost Women, right? With the brother and the sister being having been kidnapped from northern... Yeah, only that this one is a bit, uh, bit more of... Uh, oh, this one is, is a bit stronger than the, the one from Vale of the Lost Women, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's, a fun, it's a fun story, and it's a really, really weird, weird story. One of the weirder... <laughs> 
I think it's the Conan weirdest stories. of the Conan stories. Oh. Like in, yeah. that, in that old sense of Also, weird. it's never Go explained ahead. just why. What's what's the deal with this island and the pool and with these uh, fish? Yeah, it's what's it's the just weird. There's some stuff, <laughs> stuff happens. It's a real weird story. Good. Because Conan <laughs> stumbles upon something weird and escapes with his life and the girl and the pirate ship. Speaking of, of pirate and Conan stories, uh, or pirate Conan stories, and before you go, Cora, so um, The Black Stranger mm. was an audiobook that I made. Oh, yes. Um, and it's it's uh, one of the stories that is only in the public domain in Australia, so that's why I could do this thing. But it is a pirate story. Um, I think, uh, was it L. Sprague de Camp mm-hmm. rewrote it or edited Treasure it? Treasure of Thraclos or something. That's yeah. it. Exactly right. The the one that I've done is the original manuscript, so it's just as how it wrote it. But it's also a very – it's not weird in the sense of actual – there is some mystical kind of elements, like supernatural stuff. But it's more weird because of the characters. Like Conan is a very – it's an odd – it's like bizarre Conan yeah, in this story. Very, it's I like, think he also rewrote Howard himself rewrote this as a straight pirate story with Black Volma. So have you read that one, Connor? Black Volmia's Vengeance? I haven't read that one. Only only The Black Stranger. Okay. So I would but I should actually read that. You should just because to see I want to do The Black Stranger. And and then I don't know if If, if you're uh, doing it, I'm always up for that let's, one. Because let's, it's a let's really good it. Conan story and a really strange Conan story. It, it's really discussing the character is interesting because in that one, like people always say, like the main quote that describes the character Conan is that he has great sor- great sorrows and gigantic great mirth, mirth. gigantic melancholies. Exactly, and in this story, we kind of see his gigantic uh, mirth, right? Like his his personality is weird. He's having a lot of fun, nice. right? And like almost sadistic fun like he's really nasty yeah and also he's sets Conan up as very intelligent but the people yes. he kills are so really are so awful so you don't really care also this is the exactly, one which inspired yeah. this Conan the socialist essay that was inspired mm. by the black stranger oh interesting like by, yeah. by, a, by a quote near the end of the black stranger yeah so exactly what both of you guys said was like the we don't care that Conan's too too um nasty but Alex also that He's very, very intelligent. He's like pitting people against each other. And he don't, he doesn't really ever do that. He's not like a schemer in other stories, but he is in this one. Uh, so anyway, but October 23rd is the next open slot right after nudist camp by Ori hit. <laughs> classic of the genre. <laughs> yeah, Ori hits nudist camp, a classic of no the genre. Plans for October 23rd so far. <laughs> All right. Everybody want to be in on that? Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. 2022. Uh, just, and I really need to up, go uh-huh. now because um, I have to be somewhere else in eight minutes and I want to grab a bite to eat and to make a new cup of coffee. All so right. it was lovely Thank talking you. to you. And, yeah, great uh, to talk to you. Yeah. Enjoy, continue to enjoy Castle Connor. And if you ever make it, uh, make it to Bremen, then let me know. Sure. Absolutely. Will do. Thanks. Okay. So bye. Bye. Okay. See you later. Good to chat. What you got there? I'm just going to throw Thanks. out real quick. Yep. Um, the the climax of this, right? He pulls the jewel and it sets off a booby trap and the temple collapses. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want that concept taken like all the way up to 11, 
<laughs> and a lot of fun. There's a book called Riptide by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. Oh. Not Lee, not Lee Child. The, yeah, no, I know the, the parent. Guy. Um, book called Riptide. It's based on the Oak Island treasure pit. Oh, yeah. Thing, but again, taken all the way up to 11. Interesting. And there's this treasure and it was, you know, it was buried, but this pirate kidnapped this. He was a spy who designed cathedrals in the 1600s. <laughs> And he had him build his treasure pit. So it's this super elaborate architectural craziness. And at the end, like the there's all this gold and coins, or whatever. But like the treasure, the thing everyone's looking for is a sword of Saint Michael, which is this magical artifact that no one really knows a whole lot about. And at the very end, when they're about to get it, like besides a bunch of other crazy shit happening, they try and break the metal bands with, that are locking the chest to the bottom of the treasure pit. And when they break the band underneath everything else, it drops a weight which breaks this dome, like this huge underground cave dome, and the whole pit and the entire island collapse like a mile into this giant pit. Oh, my God. And that's the end of the book. It's just the most ridiculous wow. like, booby trap treasure story ever. Do, do the heroes the die? about this elaborate booby trap. <laughs> do the heroes Rip, die at the end? No, they, they escape. Oh, okay. And they, they get one coin at the end of it. It's like, this is the one coin that survived, and here it is. Wow. And everything else falls into this no, that, that's mild ocean pit. Do you know about Oak Island, Connor? I do. I I love the story. I think it's pretty fascinating. It's uh, but it, it's it's so crazy. What's so crazy about it is is it is all based on the premise that pirates bury their treasure. <laughs> yeah, is, which is like, guys, 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 like, don't look at the lore about this particular thing. Just like take a zoom out a little bit and see what pirates are actually doing. Uh, like on a daily basis, a, no X marks the spots ever. <laughs> like no. one guy might have hid some treasure in his backyard of his house, but he, they don't go to an island and then say later we're going to come back and get this treasure. Like that never happened. Well, I think like there was the main theory with Oak Island was Captain Kit, right? Mm. That he, but well, that was the one. But then there's like just innumerable theories about where. <laughs> um, the, like so, supposedly, if there's treasure there, where it could have come from, like Spaniards in the 1500s or other random things, could be Vikings. You don't know. <laughs> if there probably is Viking theories, yeah. um, it's just, it's mostly just crazy that it exists. That whatever is there, this whole mystery, and um, people spend their exists. lives working on it. It's like they're gardening. Someone else is gardening, and then they're gardening some more, and then it's like, gotta keep gardening. Why? Yeah, is yeah. there something down here? <laughs> Why? It's a reality TV show that's like <laughs> yeah. sixteen seasons. Yeah. into it, like it just never stops. And if you if you put that much, it becomes like a religion, right? It's like becomes your purpose. Yeah. And, you and admit that there's nothing there because then you've wasted all your life. But but yeah. then like yeah. that's also like why do you go to the moon, right? If there's nothing there, <laughs> because it's going to the moon. You don't understand, right? It's like we got to get the treasure. It it actually can get uh, gain a purpose after a certain point, but do you want to make that your particular purpose? You, Alex, do you do you want to like drop everything and go to Nova Scotia and start digging, or could yeah. you find something else to do? <laughs> and the answer is probably mm, probably something else to do. But for if you if you imagine your dad was into digging at Oak Island, you can totally understand why the kid would continue digging at Oak Island. Because that kind of obsession and that kind of like that work and and there's no, really it's pr it's proof that there's like 
you don't like actually need any payoffs to keep the work going, right? Like no. it's not like they're coming up with more stuff, right? Like here's a hairpin. It- Where did it come from? <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit like that. Like they find really, really tiny little artifacts and extrapolate it into a big thing. Yes, but I think it's it's also a sunk cost. Like <laughs> Literally, like they've gone so far. Literally, it has, sunk it has cost to be something. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, bankrupted yeah. dozens of people. It's just, it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if you like yeah. that, check out Riptide. Yeah, it's, okay. I'm. I like the um, Lincoln good. Child. Um, what's the other guy? Child and uh, who's the other guy? Preston. Douglas Preston. Preston. Right. I've read a few of their their joint books, and they're pretty good. They're like um, yeah, the, the early Pendergast books are pretty good. Relic and this, it reminded me. Um, I watched. Uh, I think it was uh, on Prime recently. This is a very Alex movie. I think uh, it's based on the video game. And it's got uh, Marky Mark in it. You know the one I mean. Oh, Uncharted? Uncharted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that not your, your thing? Um, it, not, not, I mean, it, it should be in theory. It yes. checks a lot of boxes. Yes. But one, it, the game is a PlayStation exclusive, and yes. I have been boycotting Sony since the 90s when they put root kits on music CDs. Ah, good, 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 good. I have never bought I never product. played, I, n- I never played it either. I, I don't own a, oh, I buy Sony products, just not their, their consoles. They make, thing, they make good, TVs, they make good things, but yeah, that rootkit thing was bad. Um, uh, so, uh, you, you didn't watch the movie? I, I did not. It, the movie looked terrible. It, 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 what's interesting is it, it should be terrible. Uh, I never played the game. Did you see it, Connor? No, and I've never played the game. Yeah, either. I never played so the I'm, game. I'm aware that it exists, but. Yeah, you've probably seen the trailers. It's sort of action adventure, round the worldy sort of thing. Um, Indiana Jones, Indiana Jonesy, absolutely. I mean, the games are extremely Indiana Jones. Yes. Mm. So this, the, 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 I guess the scene I, I described it as like uh, reminiscent of Swordfish, if you remember that bad movie. Oh yes. Um, they have a helicopter in that movie with a bus underneath it, and they're like going down city streets and. Uh, they do that with two pirate ships. <laughs> oh no, they're not pirate ships. They're um, uh, they're uh, who's the guy who went around the world? Ex- galleons. Yeah, yeah. Um, the guy who circumnavigated the world, but really Magellan. didn't. Magellan. Two of Magellan's did, ships. Magellan navigated, circumnavigated the world. No, he died before he got there. He had already been to the Philippines uh, as a kid. Yeah, but he didn't get. Uh, but it, he made it around the world. All right. He didn't make it back. But he had already been to the uh, East Indies and then went back to Port- Spain, Portugal, and All then from right. there sailed the other way around and got back to where he'd already been. Right. And then he died, but he did personally himself circumnavigate the world. <laughs> All right. He, he both did and did it. I got it. Um, so, uh, it, anyways, they, they find these Magellan ships, which are still in, in uh, Indonesia or wherever, and... Uh, they get two helicopters and helicopter them out. They're flying the ships, and they're flying the ships out, which are still <laughs> intact somehow. And then they're like weaving them back and forth, and then they do like boarding, you know, uh, boarding <laughs> actions between them. And I'm like, this movie is like, you can't imagine it being done except like as a cartoon before. It's all special effects, yeah. you know. Um, 
But why? I, it was passable why entertainment. Not? It was passable entertainment. And the opening scene, like, I didn't recognize the actor until I looked it up. And it's, oh, it's the kid who plays Spider-Man or whatever. And he, he doesn't, he looks a little bit too slight for the role. And Marky Mark's, you know, a little bit too old or I don't know. There's some, there's some other stuff that I don't, it's like game lore sort of stuff. And then there's one scene where they swim, they come out of the beach at near the end of the movie having just crashed their ships and come away with one gold coin, right? Um, and uh, there's a guy on the beach, and turns out that that actor is the voice of the main character from, you know, okay. it's the cameo, right? But the thing is, is it's actually a pretty good movie. Like, at the beginning, it has that incredible sequence you don't believe where a guy is uh, hanging out at the back of an airplane with a bunch of cargo nets connecting cargo boxes and he's like jumping from cargo box to cargo box to try and get back in the airplane. And just as he's about to get back in the airplane, a car drives out and, you know, runs him over, except it's in the sky. And it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> it's totally ridiculous. Um, but it has a kind of like, it's well put together and it's like stupid, but it's, it doesn't say, you know, we're super geniuses. It's like, a, it's better than, what's that, uh, the one where Nicolas Cage has to find the Constitution? Uh, National, National Treasure. Treasure. Yeah. It's oh, kind of like, that's a classic. It's like that, but like a little, like a little lighter. <laughs> yeah. I, I like it. Lighter than National Treasure. I know. That's, uh, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I, I kind of liked it. Uh, but it is, it's like, it's a, it's just a whole bunch of stuff you've seen before. And it was yeah. very video gamey. But I was like, makes me want to play the game. That sounds fun, right? Uh, but, you know, it isn't, it isn't, uh, deep. <laughs> but, um, and it, you know, ignores all sorts of things. But, you know, physics, mm, little off. I don't think the helicopter can lift a ship that's been not. <laughs> Maybe it could. I don't think a 500-year-old ship is going to survive very well being no. thrown through the air. <laughs> and not not in the tropics, uh, you know, even if it's been in a cave for 500 years. It, 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 so it was ridiculous, but it made me think of uh, Alex because um, that that sort of action-adventure-y uh, thing, it, it's worth watching. Stuff right, that on my list. Just pirate stuff. it, man. Then you don't give Sony any money. <laughs> yeah. Stuff that leans into like the silliness aspect is like if, just as entertainment tends to be a lot like in, more enjoyable. Just like it's and it seems like it's going that route rather than taking itself really seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So worth watching. Not amazing. Okay. I I basically forgot about it. And right after I watched it, the only thing that brought it up is that that Lincoln Child uh, uh, book. Mm. Uh, they they did a bunch of pretty good stuff together. And there's another. Um, oh, I was going to ask, uh, especially Alex, did you uh, do you have you read those um, Dirk Pitt novels? Because there, there's a yes. Pitt. Pitt uh, was referenced in this, right? I guess we were just I, talking. I actually about read every okay. Pitt novel uh, that Custer wrote before he died. All right, Britain or something. <laughs> of course they have, and how are they? Uh, those are terrible. The, oh, uh, the originals are pretty good. I mean, they're they're kind of goofy. Um, I like goofy, but they're they're a lot of fun. Um, the the one there's one of them where the plot is that Winston Churchill sold Canada to the United States during <laughs> World War II to try and raise money. 
but the contract, <laughs> like the treaty that did it, got lost because somebody robbed a train, and the only copy was lost when the train, the whole train disappeared. Some bandit stole the train, and it, and now it's the '80s, and the U.S. is like discovered this is this actually happened like well we can find the treaty now we own canada right and so a british secret agent who is definitely not james bond um is like fighting the dirt pit to try and keep canada from being sold to the u.s <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just amazingly goofy story that's uh lend lease uh realism <laughs> um i would say uh that's probably worth investigating i only thing i know about it is i watched the movie sahara which i think is based on one of the books yeah how is that compared to the book um it actually does a fairly decent job adapting the story but all the stories are like that there's just there's some evil billionaire and he's doing something and dirk pitt who is supposed to be like an underwater archaeologist Mm -hmm. sort of always manages to find his way into the middle of whatever this thing is um, but the the other cool bit is he always gets a car out of it. So Clive Cussler collected antique cars, uh-huh. really cool vintage cars. Mm-hmm. And in Another every thing book, like. Dirk Pitt finds one of these cars. And on the back cover is a picture of Clive Cussler with that car. <laughs> He's like, hey, this is mine. I own it. This is this you know 1929 Duesenberg or whatever. Right. And Pitt always finds it at the end. He's like gets to drive this goofy car. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it sounds like he made uh, enough money from it to buy all those nice cars. Um, have you, have you read another person I want to do? I've never read and really want to read is, uh, John D. McDonald's, uh, Travis McGee series. I have not. Um, I posted a lot of his covers. Yeah. But I haven't read any of those books. So the, the, Connor, you may not know about these. Uh, John D. McDonald was a science fiction writer, but mostly that's not what people know about him. They know him for his crime mystery novels. And he had a, a character called Travis McGee who lives in Florida. I think there was even a TV show in the 60s or something, maybe the 70s, um, where he rents a boat <laughs> to people. And it's basically a private detective sort of setup. Um, I've not read them, but People love the series, and the thing that ties ties them all together is the there's a color in the title of each one. So I'm, the one I'm looking at now is called the Dark Blue Goodbye. But you is know, one the girl the plain brown wrapper, right? <laughs> yeah, hmm. uh, Nightmare in Pink, a purple place for dying, right? <laughs> and there's a it's a big long series. Lawrence Block was um, a fan, uh, probably still is a fan. And I think, um, you know, Westlake is, uh, sort of the same sort of, there's a lot of people who were obsessed with the writings of John D. McDonald because they were just deliciously yummy in, in a period before Clive Cussler, right? Clive Cussler's 80s. Mm. Is that right? Um, I want to say Titanic was maybe late 70s, but yeah, it's mostly 80s and 90s. Right. So, like, at the same time, Tom Clancy's doing his, you know, techno thrillers and uh, such. There's, like, other threads of slightly off genres that are really cool. So I I, I want to get into John D. McDonald. Um, but I haven't had, you know, somebody say, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, but I, I also, I wouldn't mind trying to Clive Cussler because... Uh, I like that movie Sahara. I thought it was prudent. I, I was very surprised that there hasn't been any sequels, like, you know, with whatever that actor's yeah, I, name. I thought Sahara did fairly well in theaters. Yeah. Wait, 
Was that the but, film yeah. with like Matthew McConaughey? That's him. Yeah, yeah. Wow, and, and Clive Cussler wrote Penelope that. Penelope Cruz. Yeah. Right. And so it's, he 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 did, he did write that, did he? Yeah. yeah wow. Cool. Okay. Interesting. I like that movie. Yeah, it was he a good movie. Books, and they're all yeah. they're all a lot like that. They are fun, goofy adventure stories. Mm. And Sahara in the book. Yep. I mean, Abe Lincoln was kidnapped and by the Confederates and smuggled in an ironclad full of Confederate gold across the Atlantic, <laughs> Africa. And the union put a double in and the, the murder at the theater was just a cover up for the double. And oh but the real, the real Abe Lincoln died stranded in a Confederate ironclad in a dried up river in the middle of the Sahara. And Dirk Pitt finds the ship full of gold, you know, in, and that's just, that's how it goes. It's I mean, like the Da Vinci inquest, cool. except fun. <laughs> Well, it's that Da Vinci series that everybody really liked that I didn't get. Oh, into. Um, it's like the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, Da Vinci Code. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And they made movies out of that too. I was like, oh, yeah. But I think that but those were trying to be serious. Yeah, that's the. Like, nope. Uh, yeah. It's like, like he finds at one point, uh, one of the books, there's, they find Atlantis in Antarctica, but it's a Nazi base. So a mm. bunch of cloned Nazi <laughs> descendants have taken over the Atlantis ruins in Antarctica as a base from which they're going to try and take over the world. They're going to unleash a biblical flood. And it's that's so so interesting. I'd always got the impression that Clive Cussler was like probably a bit more like Tom Clancy. I've never read a single Cussler book. Um, all right. But I got the, like that they were more serious, but I didn't realize they had this like streak of ridiculousness through them. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's a big streak. (laughs) Okay, cool. All right. I might need to, Check this out more. Yeah, like he finds Genghis Khan's tomb. <laughs> um, he finds uh, a lost Viking colony in North America. Wow. Um, cool. It, he finds a, a, a hidden island, like the lost Hawaiian island at the end of the chain. You know, they get, they get smaller as they erode right, further right. north. And there's the one that's off the tip that used to be an ancient civilization that has sunk beneath the waves as the island blew away. Uh, but he finds like this weird cult living underwater. It <laughs> is the last remnant of this ancient civilization wow. in Hawaii. I mean, it's just, that's cool. a long series. It sounds like cool. Uh, what's the first one in that series? Uh, um, I forget. Titanic is the Pitt. third one. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mediterranean keeper. Oh no, that's cars of Dirk pit. Never mind. List of novels. Pacific Vortex 19... Oh, no. It, Pacific Vortex is the one with us. Oh, I see. That says I mean, written, with, uh, written previously, but released later. Mediterranean Caper. 1973. Wow. He started earlier than I thought. Oh, and then, so, yeah. But written with his son. Relatively... <laughs> that's not so good. All those ones after written with his son after he dies. Yeah, no. He was born in 31, right? So he first was that his first novel or had he written stuff before then? I think that was his first novel. Wow. Cuz he, he did some other stuff, I think. Before. Yeah. Hidden one out at at 30 and then still having gone on to have this massive career. That's pretty impressive. Night Probe is the one with the uh the Canadian tree they sold Canada. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, he goes to space a couple of times. Turns out there's a secret base on the moon that's been hiding there since the '60s, and the Russians decide that because it's secret, we can just get up there and kill everyone and take it over, and no one can complain because no one knew about that's, it. That's a funny thing, you know. Like uh, you were saying the, about the Nazi uh, base in Antarctica, um, I've noticed this is really funny. Um, 
there's a guy who goes on Joe Rogan every once in a while as a podcaster. He's really into conspiracy stuff. Um, I can't remember his name. He's a comedian. Uh, Sam, Sam Tripoli. He's a pretty funny guy. Um, he, he's always talking about conspiracies, right? Um, and, uh, he mentions one about, uh, New Schwabenland and he's trying to somehow trying to connect it to the guy Klaus Schwab, you know, who runs the World Economic Forum and this evil billionaire sort of laughing at <laughs> making everybody eat bugs. <laughs> like, miss, you all eat bugs and I will have my steak. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. Um, the thing is, is, uh, every time I sort of investigate, uh, one of these or just hear about one of these silly, uh, conspiracy theories, there, there always is a grain of truth somewhere in like, you know, there is Admiral Perry did go down to Antarctica. Um, did they find a Nazi base there? Mm, probably not. Did the Nazis go down there? Yes, they did. Right. Um, they, they genuinely did. It no matter what it is, no matter what conspiracy it is, you know, like the serpent men, <laughs> um, uh, you know, the leaders are all, there's, there's one about George Bush's back. Uh, like there's a microphone <laughs> back there controlling him or something. <laughs> it's like, no matter what it is, it's all been written about before it hits the public conspiracy thing in fictional literature. So Robert E. Howard's, uh, serpent man story, it the oh, yeah. story, right? Shadow it is. Kingdom. Yeah. Shadow Kingdom is it's, the explanation for why everybody thinks, you know, George Bush and his friends are all serpent men or lizard men. It's right? amazing that that little seed that he planted in that story just went on to. It resonated, into right? What it, it did. It's so true. It's a metaphor. It's, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting because there's a relationship between what resonates with people as being truthful and what uh whether we like it as a story right like we like this story why does it resonate with us because it's true and then there's a lot of people who don't read that story that but they tell other people about it and they somehow pass this along to someone else and i don't think it's intentional like they're lying to them it just gets passed along as a fact about the world right and and then people I find really interesting mm -hmm. is the description of aliens yes. changed a lot over the years. Yes. Like someone someone in Europe wrote a book about aliens and they were these glowing beings. And for years, alien sightings were all about these glowing things. Mm -hmm. And then someone else I forget the exact idea, but someone else did like the grades with the big eyes and mm -hmm. the you know, sort of typical fifties alien looking thing. And after that came out, suddenly all aliens looked like, you know, big eyes. Gray, because it resonates. And, and, and you know and where it, that goes? The grays goes back to H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells wrote like a little oh, piece. Uh, the, the Men in the Moon or whatever? Oh, no. Well, there's that too. But he actually has a little piece I somewhere on Twitter. I put it up um, where he there's drawings. It's in the newspaper of what man will look like in the year 10,000, 10, right? And we're just going to have these giant heads tiny little mouths um, and we're going to absorb our nutrients in a bath like we go into a bath and that's how we get our food <laughs> and we're, we're going to evolve into these giant headed like and he's actually making fun of it of this idea of evolution but what happens is then the newspaper makes fun of his making fun of it and they make it into a poem right and they, they're making fun of H.G. Wells and then you know 20 years goes by and then people start saying, Hey, 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 <laughs> well, I, you know, here's my theory on aliens. And, 
And the thing is, is like it goes everywhere. The first time I noticed this was with the story by Jack London called The Red One, which is an ancient aliens story. It's never explained, but there's an ancient alien spaceship in the South Pacific. And the narrator of the story is like dying and he witnesses this thing. And then the story ends, right? And it's like, this is all of the ancient aliens. Like, how did that megastructure get built? Ancient aliens. And we know this because there's like space helmets in the story, right? And mm. it's all, it's all focused on heads. Like there's the, there's a breadfruit tree or something. It's got these heads. And then the people on the, the natives on the islands are shrinking heads. And then he finally finds the, the thing they call the red one. And it's basically a giant, uh, giant ball that's impacted on this, uh, South, South Pacific island. It's like, well, that's really cool. And then you wait 20 years and people start talking about Nazca lines being ancient aliens. It's like everything has a, a literary antecedent that eventually comes out as a conspiracy theory. Hmm. And it's like, oh, it's, it makes sense, right? It does. Because we're always spinning up and working on ideas and saying, does this make sense? Does this make sense? And when we, when we hear something that we like, we pass it on. We, we copy it and we say that, yeah, that's good. And so it's uh, when, when I was a kid and I'm watching Star Trek, I just like, this is, I like this show. I, I, it's good. I don't know why it's good. Well, this one, this is a retelling of Plato's Cave, right? Oh, mm. well, now it makes sense, right? Because Plato's Cave is a good story. This one is a retelling of The Tempest. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's what, the whole show is actually a retelling of The Tempest. Oh, yeah. No wonder it works, right? Like, of course. Steal from the best. You steal from the best. You don't just make up any old <laughs> shit you found uh, lying in a gutter and you say, Conan has a sword. Then you say... Uh, here, here, I was going to pitch this to you, Alex. If, if we're going to make some real cash, here's what we do. We write Conan. Oh, and I guess we need to include uh, Connor now because he's got the adjectives for us. We write a Conan sure. story, a lost. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make so much money. We find a lost Conan story written by Robert E. Howard. We get our old paper and old typewriter and do some hand pencil and corrections, okay? Um, and it, it's just a retelling of Red Harvest. Uh, aka, um, <laughs> Yo Jimbo, aka, um, the. Someone man did that. Fist, oh, did they do a fistful of dollars, Conan? Yes. Fuck! It's also the Maltese Falcon. Oh, and, and the Maltese fistful Falcon. Fistful of dollars and Maltese Falcon wow. with Conan. Wow, um, who did that one? Yeah. Smart person. On, I'm gonna look this up. I, um. Fistful of dollars, Conan. Wow. I was just watching, uh, opening a fistful of dollars the other day and I was like, this is a great movie. <laughs> Mm. It's Conan and the the Rogues. Not terrible though. Have you seen uh, a fistful, Connor? Uh, yes, but I think a couple of years ago. It's been um, a, little, a little while. The one that I mostly remember is the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, um, it was like Conan the Rogue. There Conan is. the Rogue. Who's that by? Am I thinking of by John Maddox Roberts? Oh, really? Yeah, it is. Okay. It is that was um, wise of him to steal from the best. It is Yuyimbo and um, Maltese Falcon, and I think one other classic noir story, but with Conan in the middle. Clever. It's it's so ridiculous. Well, maybe he okay. made too many. I, I was thinking a short story, not a novel. But um, hang on a sec. 
I need to I need to clarify something. A yeah. fistful of dollars is that is that a western or yes. am I thinking of a few it's dollars a western. more? Uh, that's also okay. a western, isn't it? That's and a this is sequel. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a remake of Yojimbo, which is mm. the Japanese uh, one with Toshiro Mifune, and then the Kurosawa. And it? that's a remake mm. of of uh, well, a redoing of Red Harvest. And then there was a re- red. Uh, did you see the Red Harvest movie with Bruce Willis? I had Last Man Standing. Yeah, not a good movie, but interesting. Kind of fun. Mm. Interesting. I, I, I that, That's a prohibition era. Yeah. Like two gangs in a town, and Bruce Willis comes in and just kills everybody for no reason. Yeah, it's not well directed and <laughs> put together, but uh, what's funny is it didn't need to exist, right? We already have Yojimbo. We already have a fistful of dollars. Why not, you know, get the formula? Well, Conan, it's a perfect setup for Conan, right? Because a guy comes into town, two two rival teams are trying to uh, kill each other off. They use Conan as a hired hand. Conan uh, plays them off against each other, gets rich, uh, walks out of town while it's burning. Or whatever. <laughs> it's a nice setup. The only thing that's missing is a girl. I don't think Yojimbo has a girl. Fistful. There's definitely a girl in Conan the Rogue. Oh, okay, good. Oh, yeah, on the cover, I see. Uh, brass bikini, no less. I don't know. I should probably be brass bra, brass brassiere, rather than bikini. Have you seen the cover for the new S.M. Sterling Conan? Novel? I did. That was uh, yesterday. It came out, didn't it? Yeah. I I don't remember what it looks like, but I I saw it's a the sword with a snake. Yeah, that's it. not great. It's like someone says, "Hey, I have some stock art of the Conan sword from the movie, oh. which has nothing to do with any of the books." And then I'll just wrap a snake around. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Ta da! And it's. Well, hopefully the book's better, because that's not a great cover. Sam Sterling wrote some science fiction. Should know what Yeah, he wrote a couple of decent books. I haven't read them, but... Um, He did one called the... What's it called? I want to say the the Pishwar Lancers. It's an Indian word. I can't quite remember. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an alternate history where a comet hit the Earth during Benjamin Disraeli's reign (laughs) as prime minister (laughs) and caused an environmental disaster. And so there was, like, nuclear winter over most of the world, but the Raj in India survived because it was in the tropics, so it didn't get so cold. And so it it takes place in like the year 2000, but a year 2000 where civilization collapsed except for the British Raj in India. That's a cool Hmm. idea for a story. What's that one called? Uh, I would say Pishwar Lancers or something. Pishwar Lancers. Pishwar Lancers. Lancers. And that was... Oh, there it is. Yep. You got it. Freshwater, well, yeah, that sounds right. Steampunk, though. I'm not a big steampunk guy. It's not super steampunky. There is a Russian cannibal cult. Who That's got a great cover. It's it's a painted cover. Russian yep. cannibal cult, you say? Yes, please. Yep. Yeah, no, if you're going to survive in the frozen wastes of Siberia, cannibal culting is the way to go. Uh, yeah, that sounds good. And it's not a series. Looks Not like a series, just the one book. A which standalone. I like. He did write a couple series. I'm but. looking for an audiobook now. <laughs> Let's see. Mm. Oh, hey, it exists. Seventeen hours. God damn it! <laughs> That's a commitment, <laughs> dude. Uh, it, it, it's going to be good, but is it seventeen hours good? I don't think so. Let's do it at 2x speed, 
Yeah, that's on the, on the uh, what is that? Uh, eight. Yeah. Eight and a half hours. Yeah. Easy. <sighs> okay, I might have to head off. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I got to run. No problem at all. Appreciate it. Thanks, um, thank you. Before you run, uh, I'm going to make a list of things upcoming. Space okay. Cadet next week. Ministry of Disturbance. That's by Heinlein. Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper. Uh, that's a shorty. I think three hours, something. Maybe even less. Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Oh, man. That's tempting. Yeah, right? Um, okay. And, uh, dude, Alex, I think you should get on on our Michael Crichton read-throughs. They're really good. Um, Easy Go by Michael Crichton. It's actually by John Lang, his pseudonym. Oh, okay. Um, the last two that I, I've only read two of his early books, they're both good. The last one turned out to be a science fiction, uh, I, it's called Drug of Choice. I thought it was going to be mm-hmm. about drug dealing. It was, it, it was so interesting. It was, it was like, um, it's almost a Philip K. Dick novel and it's super fast paced. Super well written, first person perspective. Uh, it was a hard case crime reprint, right? Um, mm-hmm. but ultimate, uh, it's, it's a, a doctor discovers patients in comas with blue pee. Um, it's like, okay, that's interesting. And then it turns into like Hollywood, uh, Scientology cult, uh, mixed with, um, drug, drugs to make you believe, like almost like soma that hypnotizes you into believing whatever they want you to believe. And he goes on vacation to this, uh, to sex Island in the Caribbean. Uh, yes, sex Island, like the one that Jeffrey, whatever his name is, was running Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein Island. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally, it doesn't say Jeffrey Epstein, but it's literally like Jeffrey Epstein Island, but turns out that anything that you want is there. Right. You, you go, but it's all in your fucking head. And so basically they have like a, they give you a drink as soon as you get there. And then you, you're on the drug and you're super suggestible. So you say, what do you want to do today? And you say, oh, I was thinking about tennis. Do you have tennis? And it's, of course. And then like they, they match. Yeah. They get, no, they don't even like they, they, they give you like, you say, how was your tennis today? Right. And then they say, oh, I, I fell down. I hurt my elbow. So they get like some sandpaper and they sandpaper your elbow. And then, uh, you get, instead of getting fat because you're enjoying all the food, which is so delicious, they're feeding you like shitty food. So you don't eat very much, but you think it's delicious. Hmm. And it's, it's like, this is, uh, what, what Klaus Schwab wants you to, <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, you are, you are, you are all nothing. And you will like it. <laughs> you will be happy. <laughs> so Can you put me down for Mountains of Madness and Mysterious Island. Uh, well, those are on the list. I can do that, but they don't yeah, have dates. That's uh, fine. They're in a, Whenever you get a date, Alex, Mysterious. Oh no, that's Mysterious Stranger. Where's Oh Mysterious Island? There you are. All right. Um, and what was the other one? Mountains of Madness. Is that on Mountains the list? Of madness. Well, there it is. All right. Did you, you already did the Prince Albert and the Snake Lady. Yeah, yeah. Yes. How did that week. go? Um, good. A very interesting story. Uh, quite long, but it's a fairy tale. Okay. A I'm very, looking. And I'm, oh, that's the one. Um, yeah, that's the one with, uh, um, it's dedicated. Were you on that one, Alex? No. Oh, no. Uh, that's the one that's, it's dedicated to the Rani of Sarawak. 
Um, oh, the the right white Raja of Sarawak. Yes, his wife who left him and went to London and tried <laughs> to pawn off her her sons as royalty to royalty in England. That's funny. It is really interesting. She was like friends. Uh, the author was friends with uh, her, as was um, who's the super gay guy, Oscar Wilde. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's one way to describe. <laughs> well, in that period of time in London, you know. Um, badge, a badge. Right, well, of, run. Okay. Oh, what about Black Priestess of Varda? That's a cover. Uh, of, sure. All right. Absolutely. Putting you on there for that. All right. Okay. Uh, I think. Um, Alex. That's a cover of uh, Planet Stories. How about uh, Nudist Camp? Come on, man. You'll love Nudist Camp. Alex is gone, but you're going to oh, love <laughs> Nudist Camp. I have. It sounded like he knew what. So I have no idea who Ori hit. <laughs> Ori is, hit. Or what this is. I can look it up, though. Yeah. Okay. Just I, I, just, it. I just wrote down the date for Tom Sawyer. I'm not sure whether. That's a pretty Let exciting. me just. I need to figure out to see what else am I on. So, so here. Okay. I don't think I have anything other than The Black Stranger, which is uh, a bit of time away. Okay. So. Let me look that up. Tom Sawyer, I'm intrigued about because yes. everyone I just bought says the comic, it's so great. Comic, classic comic of it. So okay, cool. With that. Um, so I think, but you already have like six people. Oh, yeah. It's going to be popular. Okay. Listen, I might. Oh, this is a tough one. I, yeah, if, you, if you've got enough people for it, because once you have a lot of people. Yeah, it's harder. It, it's great to have, you know, a bunch of people. But, um, let me look up. Let me look up this, this nudist camp. I'll read it for you. They worship okay, nature was... in the raw, a seething novel of life and love among the nudists. <laughs> Della knew what it was to Jeez. worship nature. After all, where she came from, it was considered quite proper to swim or sunbathe unclad. She decided to welcome this strange sect that wanted to camp on her property, though she might even join them in the thought she might even jo- join them in the fun and games. It was all so lovely, so innocent, until voluptuous Ada Holden, a girl completely without scruple, began to love nature a little too passionately. Under such <laughs> circumstances, few men could withstand deliberate temptation, certainly not Ricky, Della's husband. It was then Della realized a she-devil had entered paradise. She fought back with the only weapon she had, her own glorious body. Oh, my God. <laughs> so um, Evan wrote, uh, did the um, reading on that. And okay. it's, it's novel length, but it's short. Very short novel. Okay. Uh, so I'm, this I'm is a smut book. <laughs> okay. Well, you, he also did. Evan did the reading for um, what was the um, the one that was like brother and sister? Yeah, brother like and that. sister. There was also a yeah. a smart book, and yeah. it was by the that author you really liked, uh, um, Donald like, Westlake. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, okay. Interesting. Let me get back to you about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna um, put. But I'm gonna, I'm put, gonna write uh, it down. Connor? Question mark. Connor. Can you curious. send me the audio book? <laughs> I haven't got it yet, but I will get it. Okay. When, uh, okay, when Evan's done. Yeah. So let me see. Um, it's, uh, not, it, it's done. Oh, it just, oh. I don't have it. Okay, cool. I can get it. Sweet. Thank That's, you, sir. Seems pretty good. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you. Much appreciated. Uh, I wanted was... to tell you Almuric is out tonight. Fantastic. It took a while, awesome. but it's finally coming out tonight. And uh, it's an eight-hour show because there's five hours of 
audiobook. Audiobook. And, and it's a good show. It was a good chat. It was. Was a good that chat. the first? Is that the first show we had Cora on? I think it's the second. She had a better right. mic that time. Okay. okay. Yeah. But yeah, it's cool. a yes. little over I seven months right. ago. Wow. Time flies. It does, right? Yeah. Uh, back in um, early February, I think it was. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Thank anyway, you, sir. Well, Have a great day. No promo. I'll See catch you, on you later. Twitter. Okay. See you then. Bye. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. Hello. Hi, Can you hear me? Yep. I'm I'm good. Yourself? I'm okay. Okay, cool. Good mm. to hear. Not too early. Mm, I'm okay. Yeah. I um I could always use more time, but I I'm prepped and done, so I'm Okay. Good. Okay. Um, well, I'm thinking about sleep. <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's uh eight AM there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. No, I went to bed just after midnight. Mm disappeared into dreamland and okay then, cool uh woke up a little bit early and finished my homework okay. oh, how's life in germany uh good good not bad it's been pretty um uh nice recently the weather's great um so and yeah i'm going to um next weekend i'm going to the czech republic to uh, see some uh artwork you ever heard of um, Alphonse Mucha? Mm, I don't think so. Oh, okay. He's a he was a Art Nouveau, okay, um, guy. Uh, but really, he kind of defined that style. Like he really created that style of art oh. himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to go see his masterwork. Is like this thir- a series of, like thirty paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in a castle in rural Czechia, uh, Czechia, right? It's in the Czech Republic. And, uh, it's hard to see. The last time I was in Europe, I couldn't, I couldn't see it. Um, what? You have to wear special glasses? (laughs) It was, it was in storage. Ah. um, Although (laughs) I'm sure they protect it pretty well. Um, Mm. there's been legal battles over who gets to have it and so on. So actually, let me, um, I'll send you a link. To Thank you. The which, I'm trying to find uh, a link to Alex. I'm not seeing one. So, uh, oh, that's you. T- <laughs> yeah, no, you keep going. Yeah, no. Um, so anyway, that's that's what I want to. Hello, Cora. Yeah, hi, Connor. Hi, Jesse. How's Good life morning. in Castle? Good morning. Um, how's life in Castle? Uh, pretty good. Yeah, not bad. And uh, did you survive the heat all right? Um, because Germany is not well, well set up for dealing with extreme heat. Um, it's a bit difficult. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's it, it's hotter than I thought it was going to be. Um, but I'm in a... Um, I'm in... Uh, I'm on the bottom floor 
of a building. So it's quite uh, cool. That's good. <laughs> it's yeah. better. Yes. Um, let's. Well, um, it can get uh, quite hot. Well, into but um, intense heat in the second half of August is uncommon. It's mostly um, in the most ah. the hottest time of the year is uh, July 15 to August 15. This is mm. a bit later. Later, it's normal. It's quite unusual, but it's probably going to get more usual because of climate change. Um, and uh, also, it's extreme. It's an extremely dry year, so everything is looking kind of brown rather than green. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll be interested to see how it changes if it gets a bit um, greener, because I, I think I came to Castle during the middle of the heat, so this is um, the only way I've seen it so far. But yeah, it is pretty. Yeah, everything is. Um, there's a there's a meadow next to my my house, and it's pretty much. It's normally. Um, you have to mow it several times a year to get rid of the grass. I think it was mowed once this year. And okay. um, now it's just uh, basically it's dry, dead grass. It looks like <laughs> like mm. a prairie or something. And mm. uh, I don't want to imagine what the Lüneburg Heath looks like well, because I hope to go there for Heath Bloom. Bloom mm-hmm. um, and um, it's, um, it's a nature park. It's uh, somewhat, it's a bit north of um, Connor. Okay. And um, that... it's okay. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, and um, if it's very dry, I'm um, uh, dry. It's my may well just be brown instead of green. It's uh, I can. Uh, it's not uh, that, but you can get a uh, but, but you can get a uh, train with my arm. In the burger, it's uh, it's quite nice to look at. To look at, it should be where's the this... where's the official side. There he is. This is um. Yes, it's a famous place... nature. It's a f- oh yes, it's official official site. I will put it in the chat and also where you can see where the. It's the um, it's with Heather or Heidi. Yeah, it's Heather. Is, it's Heather. Yes. The, is it the Luneburger Heidi or Luneburger Heide? Yes. Yeah. And Heide. Heide. Okay. It's actually two nature parks. Ah, okay. More or less the same, and it's a, uh, it's about um, it's about an hour and a half drive for me, so I usually go there once a year. Oh, okay, cool. Let me see what the heath is saying. It says, uh, because I have a, yeah, yeah, because I have an overview. It wow, 75%. It's mostly because now is the season. It's mostly late August or early September. Here's a, here's where you can get the overview of the bloom. Mm. And also how much, uh, which parts of the heath are blooming where. But uh, not all parts are easily accessible, especially if you're, if you don't have, if you're by by train, it's probably going to be even more difficult. Car mm. is works a bit better, but um, but some places are quite. But you you have to hike. No, stops the time. Mm. Usually you park somewhere and hike. But it's not. Yeah. And it's nice and it's beautiful and it's quite unique. It looks beautiful. The yeah, uh, mm. all the the purple. Yeah, um, it looks bright purple when it's when the heat is in bloom. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I have to take a look at that. I recognize your guy's art. I didn't know that it was uh, by that guy. <laughs> oh, um, yes. Yeah. Do, uh, Cora, do you know Alphonse Mucha? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I don't know him personally, of course. <laughs> oh, of course. We go to coffee. But I know of his artwork. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, no, I was just telling Jesse, I'm going to take a trip to um, the Czech Republic 
next weekend to see some oh, of yes. his. Um, they should have have some of it. Some yeah. is uh, in Paris, and uh, but that's mostly Edward. But I think the especially the, the things he did about Czech um, folklore and history and so on are in the Czech Republic. Yep, they're in um, near Brno is the city, and uh, or in Moravia, I guess is the um, the area. But I've it's hard to get to. I have had to plan how to get there. Yes, um, it's. Uh, <laughs> Okay, you can, getting to Prague and so on is, is pretty easy, but the smaller towns are not always easy. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think I can get to Brno um, fairly easy. I can catch a bus there, and then, but to get to the smaller town with the mm. artwork, it's, um, I have to catch a local bus. So I'm not yeah. sure how easy it would be. Maybe no one will speak English and... <laughs> Um, so we'll, we'll see. Well, in the cities they speak English, and uh, the, more, the yep. younger people speak English. Older people, actually, you might even have more luck, have some luck with German because there might still be people in Czech, in the Czech Republic who speak. I mean, uh, they did have a German, pretty large German minority. Most of them are them got kicked out after World War Two and are now here. But some of them, are, but some people might still still speak German. If English doesn't okay. work. That'll be helpful. I think um, I can speak a bit of Polish as well. So um, I've been that told that, also, that should also probably work. Yeah, I think they apparently it's it's very similar, but I can't I can't understand any any Czech. So, but maybe uh, Czech people will understand if I try and speak Polish. <laughs> Just show them um, your heart. Oh, yeah, okay, that is Most well. people are trying to be helpful if they can't understand. Of course. If someone doesn't understand. So most uh, most yep. people are trying to be helpful. Also, um, mm-hmm. you're a white guy, which also helps if you're not white, um, especially in Eastern Europe, sometimes they're skeptical of you, but... Yeah, it's a bit tougher. Working mm-hmm. white privilege. Hey, there okay. he is. Okay, <laughs> I, was, I was worrying if uh, you were on. I can't tell, because my Skype is collapsed. Although the recorder's still working. So... <laughs> Well, as long as the product works, then good. Well, we uh, we are going to lose Cora because she has to make coffee later. Okay. Uh, so, I uh, have to I have <laughs> to be at another thing at uh, at seven p.m. So uh, so I have to and so before that I want to just get a new cup of coffee and maybe <laughs> grab a quick slice of bread. So how yep. much time do we have? Uh, that's a couple hours. hour and a half. We have yeah. um, we have one and a half hours, maybe a bit more. I don't need that mm-hmm. much time to make Should coffee. Should be plenty. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it's not a long story. No, but that doesn't mean it's we, not. We won't talk a lot. Although I don't know, we'll find out. Um. Uh. Yeah. I guess we should just do a quick warm up and uh, see if anybody's got any things that we can cancel this week. I know the council can- can- canceling is not week meeting weekly, but Germany is trying to cancel the window two books right now, and uh, not really. Uh, it's just a. Uh, it's just a watered-down YA version of the original Vinetou books, which are not really uh, Karl May, the German author. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, oh, I see, yeah. And they're quite, they're from, they're like 100 years old. Are, are they public they're domain? Now, they're from the 19th century. And, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, they should be lots right. of people, the problem is that people stopped reading him sometime in the 1980s. I'm the last generation <laughs> actually read the books. And now you have people who are like 25 Oh, this stuff is racist and it promotes genocide. And everybody else has have you ever read Winnetou? No, yeah, <laughs> no. Of, uh, history is offensive. It's about friendship between a 
between a white uh, white guy from Saxony and his um, and the chief of the Apaches. That he doesn't like. He's explicitly against what the, <laughs> against what the Americans are doing to the to the indigenous people and so on. But it's just it's mm. actually a stupid debate. It's a stupid debate, and it was just triggered because um, because um, a publisher was uh, guilted into withdrawing a children's uh, sort of YA children's book. Watered-down version of the Minute Two Stories, which may well be terrible. I mean, <laughs> I, never, mm. I wouldn't think that sort of thing. I read the originals, but I suppose modern kids would have problems with uh, 19th-century prose and uh, also the lengths. They're pretty long. Mm. Also, they're in German, which is just difficult. <laughs> 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 well, not if you're German, but Minute Two Stories. The Winnie Two copies I had were my dad's copies, and they were written in Frakturschrift, which is another, which is another. They were printed in Frakturschrift because they were from, they were probably from his, his brother, so they were probably from the 30s or something. something. Oh, wow. So they were printed in, in Frakturschrift, in Frakturschrift, and that was black letter, and that's, and that's even an extra bit of difficulty. I can read it, no problem, but it's a bit difficult. I've tried to read those actually because somebody. Um, oh, it, I think it might have been. Might have been me, probably. Yeah, yeah. you probably. Um, you recommended Karl May, but um, but yeah, I don't know. For for Germans, is the style still? Because I could not understand the the style. The style. Is, it was so. It's um, an it's nineteenth century style. Yeah, and I think yeah. a lot of people have also for who are. In my May age are older now and read them as children have forgotten what the style was like. Mm-hmm. And so it was a different time, a time more complicated. The style is, is quite, uh, is very 19th century and it's quite complicated. I also remember yeah. it being not uncomplicated in the, when I was a, was a kid, but nonetheless, those were books which were actually read by lots of people as children. And then because the style was so old fashioned, they just, uh, they stopped reading them. Them also because they were better children's more children's books available. Other, better writers is the quote. <laughs> I wouldn't say they were better. No, no, that's when the quote. Kid, from... My A books were all, all the my A books were problem stuff about, uh, about people taking drugs and <laughs> very poor people in the third world. I didn't want to read it. Then, I mean, I did like some of the third world books, but it was mostly because, mm-hmm. hey, here's a completely different culture. That's cool. Cool, but mm-hmm. why are yeah, they starving yeah. and so on? One of the books about poor people from the third world was about poor people from once love Portugal. It must have been oh. a bit older because it was like even then I thought like but Portugal is in the European Union. No poor country no third world countries are in the European Union. I'm pretty sure people don't live in in trash heaps on garbage <laughs> there. Uh, I suspect suppose the book was either very old or just nonsense. I, of course, don't, no longer have access to it, so I can't check. I c- it couldn't it. send it to the group. And it was me. But yeah. I did but direct were, message. It was not easy to find good. There were some good children's books. Also, there were a few fancy books. So, yeah, you read Winnet too. And if you were a bit older, also you read Winnet too, because uh, the other stuff you had was mostly like, girl grows up, gets married, married has children, which is also not very thrilling. No, not really. <laughs> and so lots of people read Winnetou, lots of people love these books, and now suddenly some people who haven't read them, which is okay, you don't have to read them, come along and they want to cancel them. Eh, this stuff is racist, and it promotes genocide, and the people who actually have read them are like, have you ever actually read this? Mm. It's just a weird debate, but yeah. 
So I sent a direct message to all three of you uh, because I can't put it in the chat. Um, But it's it's uh, yeah, it's a some person uh, made a list of all the authors' books and reasons. It's it's all. Oh yes, did you see this one? Was was twenty or something? Wasn't it? I think you got got direct for it, and then it turned out she was like twenty years old. (laughs) You know, she didn't even make the list. She's just sharing it, right? But uh, she was sharing it. Uh, uh, my my thread on it, I screenshotted it before it all got deleted. Uh, first one is William Shakespeare is cancelled. <laughs> and then uh, but by Neil Gaiman, <laughs> George R. R. Martin mispronounced names! <gasps> Exclamation marks. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> William Shakespeare, guilty of racism before race theory invented. He a pioneer. <laughs> Uh, and then, um, among his other crimes, George R. R. Martin is additionally charged with apologizing with an image of a Voltaire quote. Uh, and the Voltaire quote is like, um, sometimes we uh, make mistakes, uh, not everything's perfect, it's hard to communicate or something like that. <laughs> and all of those got deleted. Yeah, some of these things are just, uh, some are, but, uh, some of them, one of the problems, I mean, we also have with Robert E. Howard is that really that, People apply today's uh, standards to to older books, which of course you can't do. Uh, no, and, uh, but I think Howard it is. Or or... I think it's like you're saying, Cora. They just don't read. They heard somebody told them, and then they they fo- laser focus in on like like um I, my students do this right like um. Uh, Lovecraft, he's the racist. Uh, or, or but it's it's so simple. Like they say, like um, uh, I say, oh, you got some new black shoes. Uh, I'm looking at their new black shoes, and he says, "You said black. You're racist." I'm like, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's no, a way to go. You can over, but, you can overdo it, but yeah. But I think that uh, that literally is the mentality. It's the men- mentality is you just heard something, you heard, you heard, and so you you exclude everything else. And you say, oh, that's also, bad. It could also be very exciting. Um, it's kind of like an Easter egg hunt or something. Like, let's go through all these texts that are all these classics and see what we can find. And there's a new, and when, when we find a new, uh, like, oh, William S. Burroughs or whatever, or, um, <laughs> or somebody, Charles, Charles Dickens said something. It's like, it's exciting to, I guess, know, but, but, but I don't uh, think they um, actually go through, right? Like, like this no, person I didn't. Mean, Shakespeare wrote the Shakespeare wrote the wrote um, the lines um, in the Merchant of Venice, like um, like Am I not a, not a man? Do I not bleed? And so on. Which basically is anti is an earlier early denunciation of um, racism it's, in this case. It's it's pre it's it's like just human being human and making characters sympathetic it's like they haven't even invented race theory yet they're start they're starting to work on it and he's like no uh caliban is a sympathetic character even though he's not even human right also see otello is a victim of um, prejudice and uh, racist prejudice because he's not because he's uh, some sort of exclusionary right yeah they, they're trying yeah, to get him a, for his he's religion a, he's a, he's a, he's what they call a moor so he's a so um which is not quite. He's usually put. But if they nowadays not anymore, but they used to used to just paint someone on black, which is not done anymore. But uh, 
It's also not, I think it's not really clear in the actual play whether he's black or whether he's just uh, Middle Eastern. Yeah. He might be North African, but at any rate, he's the other and gets, ex gets excluded uh, because of it, mm -hmm. in spite of being um, the great general. So I, it made me think, um, you know, like, I like Shakespeare so much. We did The Tempest, uh, I don't know, last year, or maybe the, uh, it's come out, anyways, probably about a year ago or so. And I was thinking, um, uh, two ones I really love that I'd like to do would be, uh, uh, Taming of the Shrew, which a lot of people think of as would be sexist. <laughs> um, but, uh, I just noticed, um, I was rereading a, sh a story called the King Thrushbeard. Uh, it's Rose Grimm's story. You guys know this story? Oh, yes. Uh, there's a really nice film adaptation of that one. I just saw a really cool the, one on, uh, like yeah. a short film version but there are, there are many film versions there's a great there's a great west german east german sorry east german adaptation from the mid 60s starring the great starring manfred Krug. he even said he was a big who was a big star one of the few people who were big stars in east and west and united germany so because he left east germany in the early 70s so they're kind of related because they're both about a a woman who's too haughty and she won't pick somebody to marry which is the same Promise. Yeah, it's, it's, it is basically, uh, it's a taming of the, the, yeah. the, the in fairy tales. The details are different, but the same setup. It may have been setup. inspired by that one. Yeah, that's what I was thinking um, afterwards. But it's also got, I really like it because it also has this really weird thing that's n not in any of the other Shakespeare plays, and they usually leave it out. It's called the induction. It's before uh, the play's first act and, you know, first scene. They have like, uh, basically it's like a Philip K. Dick, uh, dream sequence, or they try and trick, they, they get a homeless guy and they put him in fancy clothes and they, they say, Oh, you've been in a fever dream, my lord. Uh, <laughs> uh you, you just, um, think you are a homeless man. <laughs> and they're like gaslighting him. What's that movie? What's it called? Trading, trading places. Yeah, yeah. It's like places. trading places except with gaslighting. Yeah. Um, and then it's also a terrible thing to do, of course. It, it, oh, it's totally yeah. immoral, but it's super hilarious. And the the other weird thing is like they never come back to it. Um, and so it's almost like he's he's putting in a a uh, a pre cancellation buffer. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> these, you can't cancel this. This is all a, a dream of a homeless man who thinks he's a oh. lord. And I'm like, I don't understand why this is in there exactly because it never explains in the play. But most of the time, when they do productions, they just leave it out because it doesn't seem to follow. But it's so interesting. And then the play itself uh, is super funny. Um, I try to remember whether the, whether our Shakespeare theater left, but uh, no, I don't think they left it. It just in. makes it longer. Um, but yeah. for what and, effect? And it's long enough, so, so they usually shorten them anyway. Yes, they usually shorten them. So I was thinking about that one. And then, uh, I was thinking a lot about Macbeth, which everybody knows really well. But, um, it's the example I always show my students, like why you should care about Shakespeare is just act one, scene one, and act one, scene three, is the witches. And mm -hmm. uh, I use it because it teaches, like, threefold magic, you know, like, uh, there's three witches, they answer each other's questions, the questions are nonsensical, or they're, they're uh, paradoxical, or something like that, right? Um, 
But the other thing is they're super rude. Like, uh, in Act 1, Scene 3, there's a, uh, one of the witches says, uh, where you been? He says, uh, killing swine. And, he, and the other one says, where you been? And he sa- she says, uh, I was talking to a sailor's wife. And she wouldn't give me any of her nuts that she was eating that were on her lap. Um, uh, she said, get out of here. And I said, I said, I'll fucking show you. Um, and so she says, uh, I'm going to go get her husband who's gone to Aleppo, uh, in a, on a ship, right? Master, he's a ship's captain. So she goes to Aleppo, uh, uh, or she's planning to go to Aleppo and she's going to sail there on a sieve, right? <laughs> a sieve being a mm-hmm. bowl with holes in it, right? So it doesn't make any sense. And, um, and the second witch sister says, I'll give you a wind. And the third one says, uh, I'll give you another. And then the finally, the first witch says, and I will have all the rest. And, you have to understand, like, those are fart jokes, right? Like, yeah. after the first <laughs> witch hot, yeah. says, I'll give you a wind, <laughs> she literally will go, right? <laughs> and the second one says, oh, and okay. I will give you another. <laughs> and then the third witch will, or the first witch will say, and I will have all the rest. <laughs> right? It's like a comedy piece, right? <laughs> Super funny. Yeah. And, I, mean, uh, but, I know, but that's not the, the that's not the end. That's the, the that's the fart. She has a lot of good stuff. That's not the, that's not the end of it. That's the fart, right? The nuts yeah. part. She's going to go take his nuts. Like she's going to yeah, actually suck his nuts dry <laughs> by having sex with her, <laughs> with the husband. She says, uh, I will, um, I will do and do and do. And if you're performing it on stage, which they don't do this, right? Because it's usually for kids. Um, the, the witch should be like thrusting her hips, right? Like it's super rude. And they're not just there to set the scene and yeah. make you think, I mean, "Oh, um, spooky thoughts." It's comedy. The people always like rude jokes. Oh, like they jokes, love it. Uh, in fact, this time, of course, I liked them. There was and a lot of old. I mean, Paula <laughs> may know this in German. In German, um, the play "Götz von Berlichingen" by uh, you are by Goethe has one of has one of the infam- most infamous root lines in German literature because Götz von Berliching, who is a knight who's in a who's a he's a knight with a with a with this metal arm prosthesis who uh, with a prosthetic uh, steel eye steel hand and who gets into a fight with a local bishop and at one point the bishop wants him to surrender and Götz answers. And says, "Sage dem Bischof, er möge mich am Arse lecken." So tell the bishop he may lick my ass. Wow. And if you read that with kids, it's always a surefire laugh hit. Also, it's yeah. like, oh, but this guy could be funny and he could be rude. That's that's interesting. I never didn't know that Goethe could be really funny. <laughs> I just think of him as, as his drama, and um, it is actually sort of a drama. Story. But it is, yeah. but it, it, it is a drama, and it's it's also weird because. Uh, when we read it at school, there's a female character who's uh, evil and seduces people, and at the end she sort of sentenced to death in absentia, and then it sort of ends. And I was like, okay, but uh, what happened to Adel? To Adelheid? Her name, I think it's her name, Adelheid. What happened to Adelheid? Did they execute her? Did they catch her? Did she escape? I want to know what happened to Adelheid. Is there a sequel? And the teacher was like, Adelheid doesn't really matter. Matter. You're supposed to. Uh, here's there's an important lesson here about. Um, 
about uh, power and, uh, <laughs> and freedom and so on. And I was like, yeah, but what about Adelheid? <laughs> hmm. That's funny stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was just thinking, because we don't have too much time today, mm-hmm. I had um, something to show you guys if you're interested, mm-hmm. uh, which is bef- before we get into discussing uh, the Isle of Pirate's Doom. Um, so, uh, I don't know whether you guys um, know, um, uh, but I'm a, by profession, I'm a data analyst um, or also a sort of researcher. Anyway, and um, I'm not working as that right now, but I thought maybe I could find a project um, to work on to keep my skills mm-hmm. sort of um, up to date. And I thought, um, why don't I analyze um, Robert E. Howard's writing style? Mm. Because he has, he has such a distinct um, writing style, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Stylometry, is that what you're going to get into? Well, yeah, well, sort of, because um, I was I was familiar with that, which is how you uh, how you analyze the writing style of an author, and uh, it's a pretty difficult subject because mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. how you, you exactly do it. So, but anyway, I thought I'd give it a shot, and I started um, looking through it, and what I was interested in is I was noticing as I was reading some of the more recent stories, and I think this story. Um, that he he can, he uses certain adjectives sometimes more often, um, but there are really specific ones that tend to pop up. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading um, a whole a couple of different stories, so there was um, I made an audiobook of the Dark Man and then the Gods of Balsagoth, and these two stories were written pretty close together, and they used a lot of similar language. Mm-hmm. So I thought, why don't I see if I can find how Howard's language was changing over time through his career. Um, okay, so I did some analysis. Do you guys want to see mm-hmm. what I found? <laughs> Please. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, okay. if um, you ever want to do a, do a paper on that, uh, that um, you should send it to the Darkman journals. They are pretty, they're always they're pretty open. I, I did, uh, I've occasionally done book reviews for them. Oh, cool. uh, academic, uh, they're, well, the peer-reviewed and academic journal, the Dark Man Journal of Robert E. Howard and Pop Studies. I kind of know the editor. Cool, awesome, fantastic. This would, this might be, if this continues going, I'm only been working on it for a couple of weeks. Oh. Um, oh, but yeah. if it turns yeah, into something, uh, I mean, the submission period for the late for the next issue just closed anyway. There are two issues a year, but that would be really the sort of thing they're looking at. They're I looking can't for. make okay. this bigger. Oh, okay. Is it is it really small for you guys? Yeah, well, that's probably because I of can, my uh, my uh, yep. Skype breaking. Okay, maybe it looks okay I can. For me. It looks okay I'm for on me. the laptop, away from my actual desk. Okay, I see. Wolf's head, Lost okay, Race, so Pirates Island, ha- of Pirates Dream, Rattle of Bones, Red, Red something. Yep. So, um, what I have is, is I have thirty different stories right from the start of Howard's career all the way up till the end. Mm-hmm. Um. Not all of his stories. This is just a little. This is me just um. Slice. Yeah, I mean, um, he wrote tested. over two hundred. It would be yeah. Not, so would be take some time to do all of them. Steel I think trap. so. Yeah. Yes. So um, Steel Trap was one of the ones I I picked up that he was using, right? Um, but so these are the stories across the top, these different columns, mm-hmm. and they're from the earliest 
ordered to the latest on the right are the later ones. Mm -hmm. And then on the left, we see all the different adjectives that he uses. And so what I'm doing is, is um, for each cell, it's how many times that adjective was used in a story. Mm-hmm. The numbers that are in the cell. If I zoom in, you might be able to see it a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see it. Um, yeah, so there's over, like, I have a list of about 4,000 different adjectives wow. right now. Um, but these were some of the ones that I just quickly p- like picked out to show. Where the um, cells are green, it's showing that the adjective was included mm-hmm. in the story. And where they're where um, they're white is where they weren't. So um, these are some of the interesting ones that I saw just from this this little analysis um, so far. So you can see um, two of the most common adjectives he uses are two colors, like black and red. Um, Scar- and also, does scarlet count differently than red and crimson? Um, I'm not sure. I can do a quick I search for. I remember quite a lot of crimson and scarlet and so on. Yeah, that's and, uh, especially in titles. Yeah, that's, that's, yep. Here we can see, not so much at the start, but towards the end, if I zoom in a bit more, you can see he started using crimson mm-hmm. a lot more. So that's mm-hmm. actually a pretty good one. I'm going to yeah, it's just a, mark, mark, mark that. And I also might check out, what was the other one you said? It was red, crimson, scarlet. Crimson. Scarlet. Okay. Ooh, I couldn't find Scarlet Scar- Citadel and crimson. How is it? Is that right? S C A R L E T. S C A R. Yep. Okay. Apparently, I don't have anything, but this uh, may be for a good reason. So, one of the limitations so far that I'm trying to figure out how to solve is that um, when I process all of the writing, all of the the stories, what I have to do is is I have to reduce some of the words down to a stem. Right. Yeah. So, to just the basic, most basic form. And Scarlet might not be being picked up properly because of that reason. So this is a problem that I have because there was like the um, one of the words that I found that Howard uses a lot is the word pantherish oh, as an adjective. Oh, 100%. Oh, yes, uh, yes. He loves Conan it. Conan is always pantherish. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But the problem with, with my analysis so far is that it finds panther and it goes, oh, that's not an adjective. Right. So it doesn't right. pick up panther, pantherish yeah, right and now. Scarlet, it might find scar. And you can just search for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so this is part of the problem. But um, I'm going to be working on this. I'll continue improving it. Um, and hopefully I will add in all of the available stories that I can. So this is only 30, but when I have like 50 or a hundred or more, mm-hmm. we might be able to see some more interesting stuff, but some of the, you know, interesting stuff I found like blood mad. He seems to start using that, um, or red stained these, that's in a lot of the Conan stories in mm. particular. Um, or let me see. I'm, I'm always interested when he uses a hyphen, right. Or he's right. comparing, someone to a um, animal, right? Like pantherish or hawk-like or wolfish. Um, anyway, but this is just the very basic thing. So I was pretty happy with sort of how it turned out. Um, so I'm keen to keep going and see what else I can find. Um, yeah, anyway, that was all. <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, yeah. You need to turn it into an essay afterwards, right? Obviously. But I also think you should include the the chart or a link to it in, in oh, yeah. the uh, completed. Yeah, I'm 
sending you guys um, via direct message because my Skype's still not re- responding properly. Um, the one I'm doing with a student, um, he's, <laughs> he, I guess I'm training him to be a researcher. Basically, just don't write shitty essays, write interesting essays. So this one is a uh, weird tales cover analysis. I, I think, um, okay. Alex is familiar with the one we did for future science fiction. Uh, I, he retweeted the helpless it. women. Yeah, helpless women. So this one, basically, I said, you know, for, uh, so this is just a cover analysis. It's not a story analysis, but if you look across it, um, so variant, censored, cover art, reused, author names on cover. Some of these we didn't end up focusing on just because, like, as we're going through, we say, okay, this is important. Monsters, humanoid, mask, uh, lightning, smoke, fume, steam, flames, candle, fire, weapons, tools, helpless, unconscious, redhead, naked women, blonde, yes. <laughs> green guy or gal, women in peril, men in peril, Dutch angle that didn't end up coming much, but happened a couple of times. Alter. You sent me the link. Yeah, I it's, don't... Uh, in direct message. I can't Skype uh, no. at, attach it. <laughs> so maybe yeah, somebody can Twitter. copy it for I you. I can't see it in Twitter either. Okay, but it's not. No, you oh, can send it didn't. It, to me. it didn't happen. Uh, I didn't. Don't get it in Twitter. I I'm only got to check it again. One. Uh, oh, I sent it. I think to Evan. Sorry, I don't know how that. Yeah, you're right. There it is. Okay, now it should come. Um, so oh, yeah. this is, uh, all the issues of Weird Tales up to 54. So 1923 mm-hmm. to 54. Um, of course, a lot of the later covers were reprints of earlier covers. Yeah, uh, not that many, actually. Just a handful. A few of the, but I've, I remember that I reviewed some very late period Weird Tales and it was like, oh, there's but a few. Already, this a is few. an old cover, isn't it? The strategic placement is one I, qu- I quite liked, where they, it looks like she's nude, but there's like a little tiny hair covering her yeah, yeah. nipple. Vapor yeah, like yeah. Heavily, or there's yes, yeah, so smoke from a candle. The... Uh, brass bikini. Uh, complete nudity was uh, also, di- but I mean, weird tales went about as far as you could go into. And then uh, the so thing we added to the end here is um, who the artist was, who the editor was, uh, and um, whether it illustrated a story or not, which is actually quite hard to tell sometimes. Um, so sometimes there's question marks, but like for, for a, a while from 1933 to, uh, 1936, Brundage does every cover, right? Mm. But then like before that, she did a few. And then after that, she's in, she's, uh, mostly her, but with Virgil Finlay. And I, I never think uh, of Finlay as a cover guy, but simple. he is. Yeah. Yeah. Finlay is mostly associated with interior art. Yeah, he it's very film. distinctive, right? Some of his, his, he made some, he did some great covers, but uh, they're good. Never, nobody ever thinks of his covers. No, all, some of those covers are very good, but uh, they're not as distinctive, I think, as his interior right. art. And then after and a certain really point, Brundage is done. Brundage got to win a retro Hugo in 2020 because he was completely over. She's great, and she's completely overlooked. Her last one is 1945, but like she. You know, like, yeah, she what was happened? painting already before that. It yeah, no, she totally was. And I think also there was the censorship standard changes that, uh, that's mm. a very, that's a nude girl, nude woman cover. There was also a thing about car. shipping her pastels. She was in Chicago yeah. and Weird Tales moved to New York and she painted in pastels. They were physically too delicate to ship to Yikes. New York. 
Uh, Pestils are a bit to work with. (laughs) And so that Mm. is part of what killed her career is she was no longer physically close enough to carry the painting over and have it. Honestly, I don't know how they take a painting and put it on a cover in those days. I don't know. I I need to actually look up the lithography project. No idea how that worked. I would imagine that it may be some sort of like an exposure process. Um, I'm sure it's something to do with something like photography where they, yeah, color feel. I mean, it's they, amazing they what they could do, uh, given that but they don't is, have uh, any tech compared to us, right? Brandt actually did. Uh, I think most, not all of the weird tales are, but um, they did get the story, you know, because a lot of the covers of other pulps just have random, uh, random something or other. But the weird tales artists, they did read the, the cover story. This is why I think it was Wolf's head, Robert Howard. The manuscript, the manuscript was lost. Lost because uh, the cover artist lo- artist lost it, and oh my God. not all. Co- and Margaret Brandt actually read all of the stories, and uh, she always said that she liked the Howard stories the best, but that she was always always asked to do Seabury Quinn stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so yeah, yeah though, the, whatever uh, author got the covers art got a bonus. Yeah, yeah so, so they would compete. And that's why put they put in, their in stories uh, the that would be able to random naked women or Margaret Brandt friendly scenes show, uh, start showing up in the stories. <laughs> you can pretty much tell, not just with Howard, but with others, also with CL like, okay, this is obviously the Margaret, please give me the cover, cover Margaret Brandt who can illustrate this really well. Slithering <laughs> Shadow is particularly bad about that. Mm. Yeah. Like, here, we're going to put some nude lesbian whipping in this just to get that. Well, it's a Conan yeah. story with a giant. Sloth monster, or giant squishy monster, and they they just do the nude scene. It's really, yeah. uh, I mean, um, a witch shall be born has a, almost mm. every illustration of a witch shall be born has a crucifixion. Scene. Yeah, because that Conan gets crucified is one of the most uh, iconic scenes in the entire series. And what did Mia Tales put on the cover? Hey, we have two naked women whipping each other. Uh, of course, yeah. Women. I think they're still wearing it. And they're identical twins. Okay, who cares about Conan? So on on the far right, under uh, column number AI, uh, far right, there's a count on who got the most covers. Uh, It's would have been Seabury Quinn probably. No, uh, artist, artist, artist. Yeah, and it's Margaret Brundage by like a a a huge amount. But second place is like a guy you never heard of, CC Synth. Uh, I know. Earlier on, he did those um, sort of um, art, no art nouveau covers. I don't don't really like his covers, but I, I no, know uh, which they're one not he amazing. Not I, he did. Uh, he I think he did. A few, I think he's the guy who managed to completely uh, to completely completely, completely mispaint Solomon Kane twice. Uh, Matt Fox's <laughs> yeah, I mean, covers. It's, it's, uh, not, no, I think he did a lot of interiors too. Yes, he did. But Matt, Matt Fox's covers are like, they're so distinctive. You're like, oh, that's Matt Fox, right? Yeah, for, but C.C. Zemphis, yes, he's one of the, he's in the early, he's a pre branded period. Did he do the first the cover guy, for the ooze? I think one he did, yeah. Oh, no, it's R.R. Epperly there. So uh, one of those guys who did, who did only one cover. And there's a number of them who only only did it once. But like A.R. Til, Tilburn, right? Like okay, did a lot did, of interiors too. Yeah, did ten, ten covers. And it's uh, it's interesting. It's not actually what I I thought. Like I I'm just you know thinking about Weird Tales covers. I I can see, picture sort of one in my head, and it's not exactly like. Um, there's uh one guy who's uh he has a run. Um, and he, he Saint John, 
uh, out, Jay Allen yeah. St. John did Jay, nine. Did and I don't think of him as a Weird Tales guy, but he's right. He did nine covers. And Hugh Rankin, yeah. who I think of as an interior guy, also did 15 covers. So you like learn mm. a lot, even though it's like something mm. I'm super familiar with. Like I didn't, I didn't really, think about Rankin this. Rankin did good interior art, but he also had some really great Weird Tales covers. So uh, they were very Art Nouveau inspired, a bit late Art Nouveau because I'm on the 2030s. But they, I, I like the Rankin, like the Rankin covers. I was uh, one of the things I, I was like. The, the reason this is really good and important to do this sort of stuff is because when people say things, they're just like making shit up. And like you can just like look at the data. Here's the chart. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, because like, for example, they say like this this magazine is racist. This magazine is sexist. Or, you know, it's like okay. Well, let's look at the numbers. Like, um, women in peril versus men in peril. Right. You can do a count on it, and you can see if it's changing over time. You can see uh, how like do gentlemen prefer blondes or do they prefer redheads? <laughs> <laughs> because we can do a count on that. You know, br- br- brown and black hair, not popular on the covers. We don't even talk about it because it just doesn't come up very much. But redheads come up a ton. And it's mostly not men. So what does it mean? And, like, what weapons appear on the covers, right? How many ghosts appear versus how many uh, alligators? <laughs> and the thing is, is the the animals that appear are like things you would think. Oh, okay, well the, yeah, that seems reasonable. Some of them, right? Like there's a dinosaur, crocodile, but yeah, <laughs> uh, wolves. Uh, lots of wolf. Covers. Yeah, there's yeah, and, and, werewolf, and wolf there's covers. so many but bird covers. Well, the woman was wolf was pretty much a weird tail. But uh, but like table. not even like raven, just like just regular bird. It's like what, what, what <laughs> regular bird. Yeah, regular bird. Because uh, we also raven bird. Yeah, well, but, but we have I vultures. Our we have tails cover with a bird. <laughs> uh, exactly, and um, bats. You know, you expect bats, right? Well, you, there's the famous bat girl, right? Cover, yes, so which doesn't illustrate anything, by the way. That that cover Best of both worlds does not illustrate anything. It's not from any of the stories. Oh yeah, and and I, and that's the one of the most iconic. I think when one of the reboots recently, they they use that as the cover, and it's like it's not, it doesn't illustrate a story, which is unusual most of the time, ex- except the near the end, story, it illustrates a particular story. The scene is always mm. in the story. Even Usually, the yeah, is, yeah. It's your the scene is in the story, even if the cover is weird. The scene is. A, I mean, one of my favorite and weirdest is the Margaret Brandes one, where the where some Puritans are hanging a, a witch in a very attractive red-haired witch. There and I go. always mm-hmm. thought this was a Solomon Cain cover, simply because, A, there's a Puritan on the cover, but of course it's it appeared, I think, in 1938 when Howard was dead, and he stopped mm-hmm. writing Solomon Cain in the, in the early 30s, so it obviously isn't one, but, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's probably Sibyl Quinn or uh, Ehoffen Price or someone, I've never read the story it illustrates, but for years I always thought this must be a Solomon Cain cover, but it's not. The other, and of course, mm. the three Conan covers all have the Conan the three covers which actually show Conan all have Conan in peril. Conan mm. is, is um, it's often being protected in, by women. Yes. And Conan is shown in a dungeon being. being and, that, and, and the question is: Is that Margaret Brundage saying this is the scene I want to illustrate, or is it, or is it the editor saying, "Yeah, make sure there's some sex in this one"? <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, Francis Wright who did the uh, worst response because um, right. So that's why we included the Dorothy McKillaray. Uh, you know, uh, who's the editor? In the early 70s was Brandage, and she said, 
that he usually made, uh, that he was told this is a cover story, then she read it and made several several sketches of uh, scenes which would work, and uh, he and that Francis Wright almost always picked the picked the one with the uh, the one with the naked with the naked woman and uh, in panel. <laughs> Yeah, he knew. Yeah, there's what would some dull ones. There's one I mean, yeah. for, for dull story. There's a Conan, there's a Conan story, and a really good one in the in the same issue. But the cover is is a dull story. It's a dull cover for for a dull story. Just like okay, you waste Margaret Brandis on a on a guy with a hat. What's the, <laughs> really? the table? There's one story. <laughs> yeah, the ghost the, table. A weird tale story. The ghost table. And it had like a it had a a Lovecraft story and a Robert E. Howard yeah. story. And something else, and the cover is the ghost table. Yeah, <laughs> and it's I mean, it's Lovecraft a pretty famous Lovecraft one, story Lovecraft too. Only ever had one cover in Weird Tales, and that was uh, the story he ghost wrote for Houdini. Uh, he oh, actually got really? a Canadian cover Smith though. Also, only had one cover. Yeah, but was was that because Farnsworth Wright had a chip on his shoulder, uh, or I was mean, it because who who you know it had it had the Call of Cthulhu, the Weird Tales, yeah, the Call yeah. of Cthulhu in it, yeah. And, and it, it's the ghost the cover table. Is the ghost table, and the, the cover is a guy pointing a gun at literally a table. And the <laughs> yeah. like, oh no! It's, it's a table. Yeah. It's not even like it's, it's, it's a table. It's the most ridiculous. That's amazing. Thing. It is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, like we only have. Okay, they couldn't know it would be one of the most famous stories they would ever print. But <laughs> yeah, sometimes True. it's just silly what they what they chose for the cover. When you think like, okay, but there's a really great story in there. Why didn't you choose? It? You put this thing on the cover. You know, like so I'm going to defend the Quinn story, my story of the ghost table. Yeah, <laughs> I, w- I will defend the ghost table because if I saw a magazine that had a story called the ghost table, I might actually buy it just for that. Like, it's very intriguing. You don't know what a Cthulhu is yet, <laughs> but you do oh, know what gosh. a table is, and you know what a ghost is. So, yeah, yeah. I'm just ghosts looking at the tables. cover. Oh yeah, it really is a guy with a swooning woman. A woman a guy in a looks like a bathrobe. <laughs> a swooning woman, woman uh, pointing a gun at a table. Okay, it's a quite <laughs> nice Victorian table, but it is a table. Uh, you'd be surprised to see that camels are very popular on cover of Weird Tales as well. Weird Tales? I, yeah. I mean, Oriental stories, it makes sense, but Weird Tales... Well, that's the thing, is, like, they are related, right? And yeah. So, yeah. I, it might have been just uh, leftovers from Oriental stories uh, ending up it's, in Weird Tales. It's very <laughs> interesting to think about, like, you know, we can come up with theories, but usually what happens is it's somebody who's unfamiliar with it who just repeats whatever thought pops into their head when they first see one thing, right? But uh, even people who are familiar with it, we we do need to say, well, how many times do swords appear versus guns on the covers, right? And then we ha- we can actually form better theses because we say, look, these numbers don't show what I was initially thinking. So in order to write an essay, what you really need to have is a bunch of data that informs your thoughts, right? Mm. You don't start with the, like, the way they teach essay writing in school is they say, you know, you put your thesis statement at the top and then you support it with your things. But they don't explain, like, what you actually have to do is have something to write about first. Yeah, and then that is not how essays, essay writing is taught in German schools. <laughs> no? Oh, good. Mm. How do a they teach bit, it? A little bit. Uh, I, I found I've seen the, the kind of essay writing tips, uh, writing things for for the US, and was like, okay, well, this is kind of different than what, than what we did. Yeah, it, I, I, go for it. Oh no, I mean, I think it's good. It's really, it's essay writing is kind of related to 
the scientific method. Yes. In terms of you got a you have a thesis, you look at the in- available information, and then try and support that. And if ideally, if you support it, then yeah. Um, it, ideally, if you your thesis is proven to be correct. <laughs> but um, do we want to get started? Let's I'm start. Just I think We're we warmed really up. Should get started. Here we because, go. Um, uh, uh, because I'll have to leave in about an hour. Okay, uh, Jesse, probably Connor, probably Alex and Cora. Yeah? Jesse, Connor, Alex, Cora. You got it. Okay. Um, I think we're pretty ready. Um, by the way, uh, I do have an e-text version. If nobody else has one, I can send a direct message. But if you type in freeread.com slash au and then... I'll pirate Doom. It should come up. I have it uh, some. I have it somewhere. Not this one, but I have e-text version. Uh, somebody <laughs> just put something in the chat. I can't see it. I'm assuming that that's a link to a working. Yeah, link to okay, good. The e-text. All right, here we go.